And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, when on this show, in this airtime, almost anything can and has been discussed. Now, we have a really interesting show because, again, tonight... There is another unmanned mission headed for the moon. And as I was saying to uh, some folks, you know, a few days ago, doesn't anybody but me find it really bizarre and totally inexplicable and, and frankly confounding that back in the primitive, you know, stone knives and bearskins days, to quote Spock, of the space program, Way back in 1966, when I happened to be in New York and I happened to be abducted by NBC and I happened to become their inadvertent science advisor for the first unmanned soft landing by a U.S. spacecraft on the moon, Surveyor 1. With the equivalent of stone knives and bearskins, we landed perfectly. That's almost 60 years ago. And now, in the recent crop of nations and corporations trying to land on the moon, we're about 50-50. Half of the missions have failed, and half have succeeded. Most of those that have succeeded have been by the Chinese and the Indian government, with a kind of, a, a, what do they call those in horseshoes, a leaner by the Japanese, the slim mission, which landed, which hit something on the way down, which lost an engine, which turned upside down on landing. And so it's sitting upside down uh, there in Mare Nectaris, waiting for dawn, where the sunlight's going to reach its hidden solar panel that's on the wrong side. In other words, the track record, and I haven't really done a careful enumeration, which I should probably do for next weekend when I'm going to have a conversation with Joseph Farrell about all this. But like, you know, a very large percentage of missions by the U.S. and the USSR in the early primitive days of spaceflight successfully landed spacecraft on the moon, way over 50%. And now we're at 50-50. And tonight we're going to talk a bit about, you know, what are the odds for the current mission built by a company, a corporation in Houston, Texas called Intuitive Machines, a spacecraft launched by a um, SpaceX Falcon 9 a couple days ago, uh, en route to the moon. It's going to arrive on the 22nd. Tonight is the 17th. And... The odds, just based on the track record from post-space, you know, program number one, the first age of space, which kind of ended in terms of the moon in 1976 with the last uh, Russian Luna mission. And since then, the Chinese have landed, the Indians have landed, the Japanese kind of landed, and this is going to be the first effort by the United States in terms of a corporation, a private enterprise mission, as opposed to NASA government, 
that will try to become the first U.S. mission to land successfully next week in like 50-some years. Now, normally you'd say, well, technology moves on. You know, scientists get brighter, engineers get smarter. Uh, you know, you basically do all up testing. You bring out all your problems either in the lab or in these other missions. Every mission is a learning experience. The new guys learn from the older guys who learn from the older guys. And yet with the moon, and to me, this is becoming a really interesting problem. Because with the moon, our trend curve is in exactly the wrong direction. Well, we'll get into all of this tonight with my uh, special guest, Nova Spivak. Nova has been on the show a couple, three times before. Um, he is kind of like the humanities archivist for missions leaving Earth and journeying into the solar system. And for a lot of you, I know that may be a new concept because people, when they listen to radio, they tune in, they tune out, they jump in, they jump out. So a lot of you may not know that we have an active program spearheaded by our guest tonight to leave samples of the human condition in as many places in space as possible by hitching rides. <clears throat> and that's actually not the technical term for it. Uh, Nova will describe the process. But basically hitching rides on various spacecraft going various places uh, in the solar system up to and including our next door neighbor, the moon. And he's already done this with the moon at least once with the Israeli Barashit mission, which even though the spacecraft did not successfully land, it crashed, the archive is of such, um, what's the word I, I will use? Redundancy, that's a good word that even crashing on the moon does not destroy the library. It just will make it harder for future generations or ETs or somebody in 100,000 years to say, oh, there's one of them, and go and pick it up and begin to read it. So even if this current mission does not land safely, meaning a soft landing with the spacecraft in an upright condition, surviving to broadcast for two weeks of lunar day. The archive, regardless of what happens, is going to make it to the moon and it will survive. And so there will be, I think, at least two independent human archives of our entire global history, beginning way back, you know, at Sumer, on the moon, at least, to my memory, twice. And Noble will correct me if I'm wrong. So it really... The only reason that we really need a soft landing is, A, to break the curse, like, like the Red Sox, or was it the White Sox? I think it was the White Sox that had that curse. Um, and or to have the experiments which are functioning uh, after landing, or they're, they're, they're planned to, uh, survive in excellent condition and then begin to relay data for two weeks, two weeks of the lunar day. And that's another mystery. But I, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself. So let's, let's go for those of you who are new to the other side of midnight. Uh, let me tell you what we do. We have a section called Radio with Pictures where we put up various items, videos, links, um, images 
whatever. And we go through those as the show progresses and we refer to them. So we'll tell you right now how to get to them. You go to our website, of course, which is the other side of midnight.com. And you click on tonight's banner, which says they're trying again. Any bets, which has that really amazing image of a Falcon 9 leaving uh, Cape Canaveral spotted, silhouetted against the last quarter moon and on some mission. It's not this current mission, but it's a previous uh, mission that Musk launched, which is emblematic of what this company, Intuitive Machines, is trying again just days, literally days, after the Japanese uh, government, the JAXA Space Agency of Japan, kind of landed their spacecraft, although it's upside down. It did function after landing. They were able to get data, take images, get spectra of the local terrain, even though it's kind of sitting there upside down with its engine, one engine, stuck up in the in the air. Well, not technically air, it's vacuum. Um, the other mission, which was supposed to kind of companion the the mission uh, we're going to talk about tonight by Intuitive Machines, launched uh, a couple, three weeks ago by Astrobotic, which is a company not in Houston, but in Pittsburgh, associated with Carnegie Mellon University. They had a mission which was supposed to land called Peregrine, which, of course, is a falcon in the Egyptian tradition. It's Horus, and it had some really bizarre and peculiar things going on around it, but it also carried one of Nova's archives, or actually I should uh, call it the Arch Foundations archives, and we'll explain that as well. But it never got to the moon. In fact, it was deliberately destroyed in a very unusual historical wrinkle uh, because it was a functioning spacecraft and it could have been launched in a way that would have put it into eternal orbit around the sun, which meant that the library, the archive that uh, NOVA had on the mission, instead of landing on the moon, would have been eternally orbiting the sun, which frankly for archives is just as well, because with future technology, you'll be able to find these and retrieve them. Although I I bet there's going to be a very good argument for leaving them exactly where they are for as long as the solar system lasts, because this is our mark in the solar system as the beginning new spacefaring species from planet Earth. Again, these are very, very large and astonishingly interesting uh, philosophical and cosmic concepts made possible by the democratization of space to where people like uh, Nova Spivak can literally launch private payloads with incredible importance on missions both government and non-government, that will last probably beyond the existence of planet Earth itself, which is a very interesting um, thing to think about. So, all right, let me me see how to get to where we're going. You want to go to that banner and click on that banner at the other side of midnight.com. That will take you to the guest page. And under that banner duplicated at the top of the guest page, you will see uh, a white line of letters says fast links to items. You'll see my name, Nova's name, and Andrew Curry, who's joining us a little later on the program. Um, and you click on my name. That takes you to my items. 
This came up this week in a very bizarre uh, fashion that, frankly, I I just have this intuition that there's a lot more here than meets the uh, leak or the chairman's letter or the response on Fox or the discussions by various pundits and all that. Because the history of this, and you can read this, of course, in the uh, in item number one, Russian nuclear spacecraft would reportedly attack with massive energy waves. Uh, a chairman of the key house committee on um, uh, armed services came out this week with a letter which all but disclosed the existence of a very top secret uh, Russian project to put some kind of nuclear weaponry in Earth orbit. Just what we need. And the reason everybody is making such a fuss about this is because they obviously have not thought it through. There are treaties. Technically, we are bound by the Treaty of 1967, which was signed in the Lyndon Johnson White House in, in uh, uh, early 1967. And the Russians, the Soviet Union, were co-signers. And those particular treaties, that particular treaty in itself, forbids the uh, establishment of nuclear weapons in cis lunar space or on the moon. I'm not sure it extends beyond the moon, but I haven't read the treaty in a long, long, long time. But certainly in near Earth space, low Earth orbit, uh, geosynchronous orbit, which is 20 some thousand miles up uh, at the lunar distance, a quarter of a million miles, we are not supposed to, we and the other signers of the treaty, to put nuclear weapons in space. So this announcement, this leak, which later was corroborated by the White House that there in fact was this developing Russian technology. It has not been deployed, it's, it's in development, but everybody is kind of wondering and scratching their heads because it makes no sense. If you were going to, in a nuclear war, take out the opposition's reconnaissance satellites by detonating, you know, atomic weapons, uh, a few kilotons, maybe a megaton, whatever, in space. So you would kill the electronics of all these spacecraft through the amp that such a nuclear device uh, creates. You'd not only wipe out the, quote, enemy's satellites, you'd wipe out not only your own, but probably every advanced digital electronic system on planet earth which means you would automatically kick um the russians the united states europe india the whole world you kick it back to the 1800s pre-electricity where you had cows and horses for transportation and milk and and i mean the, the whole idea of kicking civilization back hundreds of years would wind up killing billions of people on Earth, literally from starvation, from supply chain collapse, from all the things that we only glimpsed during COVID, except this would be permanent because it would be decades before things could be rebuilt. And in the interim, civilization would collapse simply from starvation and chaos and all the other things you can readily imagine. So it would be part of a mad scenario. 
mad, mutual assured destruction, the kind of agreed upon but not written down legacy of the Cold War, where during the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s, and even now, the idea is that if any power on earth were to be stupid enough, foolish enough, absurd enough to launch a nuclear war, um, they would be destroyed by a counterforce that would basically take out their country. This has kept the peace, kind of like two guys in a dark room filled with gasoline with lighters that dare not light them because if they drop them, everybody dies. That stalemate, which has kept the peace for 70 plus years, we've not had a nuclear war since World War II, the very end of World War II, that stability based on fear and terror and force and counterforce, if this Russian report is true, and there are many sources in Washington that are now saying that it's true, is nuts. It's insane. It's another reason why, as I've said on the show now countless times in the last couple, three years, we have got to go through the process of disclosure, discovering what's around us in the solar system, our true legacy, the fact that we are not alone, that there are extraterrestrial civilizations busily going to and from in the galaxy and beyond, and the fact that we're quarantined for some reason so that we pretend and act like we don't know any of this is real. It's going to, at some point, wind up with some incredibly catastrophic stupidity which will doom the human family because we're all stuck tonight on this one planet which of course is the reason why Elon Musk and others uh, are looking very carefully and working very assiduously to try in um, Elon's words to make the human race a multi-planet species you know do not put all your eggs in one basket is the old cliche that is what we're working toward and that is part of what we're going to talk about tonight because this mission this unmanned robotic mission to the moon to be landed hopefully successfully next um week on the 22nd when is the 22nd tonight's the uh, 17th so the 22nd would be Thursday, next Thursday, I'm, Thursday's my favorite day. I guess it's because that was the night in Radio Land when the Lone Ranger was broadcast. And so Thursday became one of my favorite days. They're going to land on my favorite day or try to land. And if they, if they make it, they have instrumentation on board that will totally revolutionize international perception of the moon. If they don't make it, their very fact that they do not make it will hopefully raise such an outcry and serious engineering questions regarding why are we not able to land on the moon anymore reliably when we did it decades ago, you know, first time out of the box. And that resolution of that conundrum, that huge mystery, could propel the human race forward to an understanding that the moon is not basically what we've been told it is. It is so much more. And part of the more is the part that could doom this current mission, which will 
get into in terms of details as we move through the morning. So item number one is this very bizarre Russian uh, report of the development of nuclear weaponry for Earth orbit, which will wind up killing Russia and everybody else uh, and has no utility at all in any kind of a hot war scenario because basically it's uh, arguing over the corpses. Item number two, this is now directly from the uh, new mission. Um, they launched a couple, three days ago on the eerie, eerie, early morning of uh, the 15th. It was supposed to be launched on, on uh, Valentine's Day, but they had a hole. They had a small problem they had to solve. So they recycled the count and they launched at 1.05 Eastern time on Thursday morning, which was the 15th. It will take them eight days to get there, so they're going to land somehow on the 22nd. Um, a few hours ago, they released the Intuitive Machines people from their spacecraft Odysseus. That's the name of the lander that's heading toward the moon right now. Uh, they released some really spectacular imagery from uh, low Earth orbit, including when they separated from the second stage of the Falcon 9. You can actually see that as part of the um, uh, image in item number two, that cylindrical thing uh, to the left of the Earth's you know, atmosphere and to the right of that brilliant glowing sun disk. That's the second stage. And you can see the foot pads and the various hardware of the um, uh, Odysseus lander on the right-hand side in a very wide angle image. It's probably eh, maybe not quite 180 degrees. Maybe it's 120, but it's a beautiful wide angle image. And there's all kinds of other images in that link. So you might want to take a look. At least we know their cameras are really, really good. And unlike other missions, uh, they're not being stingy with their images. So we're going to get images, I'm, I'm sure, of the Earth getting smaller and the moon getting bigger, and then when they get into orbit, and then before, so we have a lot to look forward to. The problem is, is the moon going to cooperate? Now, for those that really want to hang on all the details, you're going to take a look at item number three. This is the uh, IM1, that's Intuitive Machines 1, which is their technical name for their lander. Odysseus is another name. Nova C is a third name which is attached because they're hoping to produce a kind of a generic spacecraft for landing payloads on the moon and that's where the nova c comes in the class will be nova and the mission assignments will be according to the letters of the alphabet and i guess c is the third set of uh, instruments that were put on board this first mission Anyway, so I've never seen a mission that had more names associated. So if you're confused, think of it as Odysseus, you know, returning after years away at war. This is Odysseus returning to the moon after decades of not going to the moon from the United States, either by NASA or by private corporation. And on page 36 of this very interesting and very detailed and kind of like old-fashioned, old NASA ease press kit. I mean, it really has a lot of information packed within those beautiful color PDF pages. 
You will find on page 36 description of an instrument that the spacecraft carries, which is basically a lunar telescope. And if they land successfully, they plan to take a series of pictures of the skies above the landing site in broad daylight, because of course on the moon there's no air, so there's no scattering, there's no skylight, there's no you know blue sky, so you can photograph stars and planets and other celestial objects in broad daylight, provided you create the right telescope with the right kind of filtering so that you don't get the blinding uh, light from the surface reflected in your optics. And the camera is designed to do just that. In fact, the, um, the uh, cone around the objective lens looks kind of like one of those dog collars you put on dogs that have been to the vet. And you don't want them to chew something or lick something. So you put this cone around their their necks. Well, this telescope has a cone designed to eliminate any scattering or reflections of light from the lunar surface because the mission's only going to last during the day, we are told. And so the photographs they're going to take of the stars, the Milky Way, uh, the Earth, um, other celestial phenomenon will be taken during broad daylight, but will be taken in a way that eliminates the potential uh, blinding, scattering, brilliant sunlight reflected from the lunar surface itself, which, of course, for all those people that have been following the moon hoax nonsense for decades is why the, there are no stars visible in the astronaut photography, because when you're photographing a brightly lit landscape, the stars are so dim by factors of millions that there is no way with, you know, kind of dumb film technology of 50 years ago that astronauts could have recorded under ordinary conditions the lunar surface, the lunar landscape, the lunar equipment themselves, and captured any stars at the same time. This particular telescope on this Odysseus mission is designed, frankly, I think, to prove to the, to the doubters that yes, you can take stunning pictures of stars and color of the Milky Way, which should be really astonishingly spectacular from the lunar surface if you design the right kind of telescope. So that's only going to work if the telescope and the spacecraft to which it is attached successfully lands on the moon next Thursday. So this brings us to item number four. Based on what I know about the lunar environment, based on decades of research into the additional parts of the lunar environment that NASA and no other space programs have ever talked about, I know that the Intuitive Machines spacecraft has about a 50th chance of successfully landing because all around the moon, this complete sphere of 2160 statuette miles hanging in our skies, orbiting once a month, the only natural satellite of Earth, there is this ancient, incredibly eroded, but still dangerous glass dome around the entire lunar circumference. Now, on parts of the moon, it's denser than other parts. On some parts of the moon, it's almost non-existent because it's been eroded by selective meteor bombardment 
from a specific direction, i.e. the motion of the moon around the Earth in its orbit and the motion of the Earth around the sun in its orbit. But other parts of the moon, like the far side or the poles, the density of the surviving glass is so high that any spacecraft, both unmanned and manned, attempting to land there will have serious problems that the Apollo missions uh, did not face because they landed at the equator on the Earth side of the moon facing the Earth all the time, and that's where the glass is the thinnest. And I don't know whether NASA deliberately selected that with knowledge of the glass or they just lucked out. But they lucked out, you know, like six times. So, you know, that's extraordinarily uh, more successful than the current crop of of attempted landings, which, as I said, are about 50-50, even though the technology over 60 years has gotten infinitely better. Landing on the moon should be a piece of cake. It should be simple. It should be trivial. It should be so carefully, precisely calculated and carried off. And the fact that half of the missions have died and died in ways that are kind of obvious that something weird is really going on. And yet no one officially asked any questions. I'm hoping that if this current mission does not land, it will in fact raise enough of a fuss that there will be serious questions as to what is really going on. And we're at the bottom of the hour. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. You're on the other side of midnight when we return and the library of humankind that Odysseus is carrying right now tonight toward the moon. We shall return. Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, February 17th of 
24. As I said a few moments ago, in about a week, we're going to try again, landing something on the moon from the U.S. for the first time in over 50 years. And there are serious questions in my mind based on the technology of landing, which we'll get into as we get into the program, uh, that I think makes it a very iffy proposition because the technology that the current batch of new missions is using, if I'm right about the presence of this ancient lunar dome, are exactly the wrong technology to use to try to land on the moon. And we will actually demonstrate uh, later in the program why this is so. But right now, let me get to my guest and uh, do a couple things here so I don't have things running in the background. My guest tonight is Nova Spivak. Nova, as I said, has been on the show uh, a couple, three times. He is ranked among the top 20 futurists worldwide and is a top L.A. power player in technology. He has advised governments, presidential campaigns, Fortune 10 global corporations, leading consumer brands, venture funds, incubators. What's an incubator? I don't think it's about babies. And tech startups. Uh, Mr. Spivak is the founder and CEO of Magical, a science and technology venture-based studio in Los Angeles where he works, well, by long distance because he's now on the East Coast in Florida tonight. So it's really late there. It's after midnight uh, on the East Coast. Um, one of the early space tourists and space entrepreneurs, he has had a long interest in helping to facilitate the growth of a spacefaring civilization. He flew to the edge of space in 1999 and did zero-gravity training with Peter Diamandis and Rich Garriott with the Russian Air Force and the Russian Space Agency. He is co-founder and chairman of the Arch Mission Foundation, which is building a solar system scale backup of Earth. The Arch Mission successfully launched the first permanent library in space on February 6th of 2018 as the secret payload of SpaceX's Falcon Heavy test launch. A second archive uh, was intended to land on the moon in 2019 and thereby hangs all kinds of interesting tales. You can read the rest of his very intriguing bio. So, Nova, welcome back to the other side of midnight. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. One of the things that really made me envious of you the other night was when you sent me an email and I'd asked you something about, you know, tonight, and you said, I'm at the Cape. <laughs> I thought, oh, my God, because I remember <laughs> what pre-launches are at the Cape. So let's spend a few minutes for all us very, very envious people that you got to see the launch of Odysseus live with your own eyeballs. And in, in the day when I was, you know, doing stuff for Cronkite and CBS and witnessing Saturn V's and other launches, we were missing a huge part of all of Musk's SpaceX launches because back in those days, the rockets never came back. In this day, the first stage of the Falcon 9 literally returned to the Cape a few minutes after launch, and you were in the catbird seat, you and your family, to see it. So take a few minutes and let's talk about what that was like. 
Uh, well, I mean, the the launch uh, was uh, pretty much a, kind of a wild party. Um, <laughs> we had 250 people show up to our event, um, which was, you know, at Kennedy Space Center. Um, lots of incredible speakers. People flew in from all over the world. Uh, a very eclectic group. Um, and... Uh, it was, a, it was a wonderful night. Uh, and hopefully, uh, it was. We were hoping there would be a launch at the end of the event, but it was delayed. This was on the night of the 14th, on Valentine's Day. And that's right. Um, so it was a black tie event that we had. Oh my and, God! Yeah. <laughs> um, although I don't, I don't know too many. I don't think too many people actually brought tuxedos. But a lot of people wore T-shirts that looked like tuxedos <laughs> or simulations of black ties. It was pretty funny. Um, but it was, uh, it was a, a great group and. Um, at the end of it, um, at the very last minute, we were informed of the, of the delay. Um, but fortunately, a lot of people decided to stay. And so it turned into about a, a 48-hour oh my party. God. Oh, does this bring back memories? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yes, yes. Okay. So <clears throat> there was a ton of people, um, you know, pitching in. There were, people had rented you know, many different houses um, all around the, the, uh, the area. Um, with different views of, you know, from different perspectives on the launch pad. Now, now these uh, are the people that work for Intuitive Machines, right? No, actually, they had their own party. Oh. Um, yeah, Galactic Legacy Labs um, is, had, had a party, and Galactic Legacy Labs um, is the, the party that has the payload with Intuitive Machines that's carrying the ARC mission, uh, as well as other things. So we were part of that event. Ah. Um, Galactic Legacy Labs is also known as GLL. <laughs> um, so their, their payload is called Lunaprise um, and contains lunograms, but it's also carrying the ARC mission and all of our content. So hmm. it, was a, it was a big group of people. Um, and, you know, many different house parties going on. Uh, so people kind of went from house to house, party to party. Um, you know, people were going out and pitching in and buying, you know, beers, tequila. Oh, this sounds so much like the pioneering days when I was at the Cape and it was all brand new. And, you know, it was really, you know, what were we doing? It would never, nobody ever done this before. Gosh, that does sound so familiar. So familiar. Yeah. It it was like a, it was kind of like college. Um, You know, so it was. was Yeah. So you didn't sleep for 48 hours. I take it. Nobody did. Nobody really (laughs) did. Um, so it was just a, it was a it was a very fun communal um, you know gathering happening. Um, we had all kinds of interesting characters show up, um, and uh, we even had you know a Native American chief and lots of other people came. Seminole. It was very very interesting. Mm, I can't say which one yet. That might be something they'll be announcing later. But uh, it was a very interesting group. So we we had a lot of fun. It was a great time. And uh, then, you know, when it came time for the launch, the second night, uh, we had uh, about, I don't know, 40 or 50 people at the house that we had rented. Well, wait a minute. You had been very strategic because some years ago, a couple of years ago, I guess you moved from L.A. to the East Coast of Florida to Jupiter, Florida, I think, right? Yep. Yeah, to Jupiter. But for this mission, you rented a house literally there on Merritt Island so you could see the launch with your eyeballs. Yeah, we were we were we were pretty close, and um, so we all went out and um, just watched it go up, and it was just an amazing night. It was perfectly clear. It was just a very thin 
thin cloud sheet of clouds, very thin, uh, only in one area of the sky. And, uh, you know, it just was like, it was kind of like a Roman candle, but a lot brighter um, and just kind of went up. And it was interesting. You saw the clouds kind of, there was a kind of an illusion as it went through the clouds. It seemed like the clouds were moving out of the way. (laughs) It was kind of interesting because it it kind of lit them up. And then there was kind of a, like a, uh, uh, like a rainbow around it through this thin layer of clouds as it went past. Oh my. Which is really cool. And, um, and then kind of went above them and, you know, then the sky's clear again and, um, you know, saw it go all the way up, separate. And then, uh, you could see the light even of uh, the next stage as it kind of went off, and then um, the uh, the return of the booster uh, came back, and uh, you know it was a tremendous sonic boom. Um, and by the way, it was an interesting day because I think I think I heard SpaceX had four different rockets on different pads at the same time, and there was there were two launches on the same day, so there was actually one in the afternoon as well. Um, which we actually missed, um, but it shook the house. And everything oh, yo, said, you, so what was you, that? there's no comparison between a night launch and a day launch. No, well, the night launch was so much, was so much better. I mean, we did see the return part of the day launch, but you really couldn't see that much, you know, from where we were. I mean, you can see a little bit of a light and some, some stuff come down. Um, the sonic booms were great, though. really, really great. And of course, <laughs> the sound of the engines and the way they crackle, you know, because when it's very different when you hear a launch um, on a microphone, right? But when you see one, because the microphones don't pick up these low frequencies, no nope, sound, nope, nope. and um, it just crackles, you know, it's kind of, it's, as well as the thundering sound, there's a kind of a very sharp kind of crackling sound that's there. So you get this great sound, and then, of course, the sonic booms are awesome. Um, so it was really amazing. And, uh, yeah, it was just a really magical moment. I mean, after 48 hours of partying and you know, people singing that David Bowie song over and over, you know, and, and every other kind of space-themed song, um, you know, and lots of music and people yelling. All of a sudden, it just went dead silent, you know. And everybody was silent. And it was just beautiful. This thing went up perfectly quiet, you know, and then the sonic boom. So it was a great night. I'm surprised, <clears throat> based on partying, that uh, I remember dimly, very dimly, that you even remember what it looked like. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I made sure not to be uh, too wasted to actually enjoy the moment because obviously that was the whole point. Yeah. So what, is it, what does it look like and feel like to see a booster actually coming back and landing? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's weird. You know, it's like you see it. Well, isn't literally. it kind of like right out of Buck Rogers? We always yeah. used to see that on ancient TV. And that's what you used to think spaceships would do. They would come down and they would right. land on, on, on landing legs, right? Exactly. Right. Like Tintin on the moon. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, no, it's really weird, especially because it was such a clear night. We could see, you know, the, the lights of the different things that were happening. So you, you saw the part of it continuing up and then you saw part of it coming back. In fact, we saw, I, I, we saw, we saw the, the actual, I think, I guess it must have been what the second stage going down range. You could see a tiny little, almost kind of orange, yellowish kind of glowing light, tiny, going way out over the ocean. Hmm. And at first, I thought, "Uh oh, something's wrong." We were looking up the back end of the second stage Merlin yeah. uh, vacuum engine. We we were worried because we thought, "Uh oh, you know, maybe the 
the booster's not coming back because we thought it might be the booster. We didn't realize. Was, was this your first place. launch? No, I mean, I saw a shuttle launch when I was a kid. Oh, okay. Um, but this was my first in-person SpaceX launch. Where you're looking out there and you're saying a piece of me is riding on this mission. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really cool. Um, you know, me and a lot of the other people there, um, you know, all of us were kind of on this mission. Well, given the fact that most of our audience is new because there's turnover in radio and television and all that, people don't know, A, what you've been doing, B, how you got into it, see what your vision is. So let's start at the beginning. Let's assume nobody knows anything. How did Nova Spivak, head of the ARC Mission Foundation, get a payload literally heading toward the moon tonight, which among other things carries a book by a certain author named Richard C. Hoagland, literally inscribed in internal nickel plates that will stay on the moon for millions of years. Well, um, it actually started when I was eight years old, and I won't go into all the details. You can read about it on my blog, Google me. But I had a dream when I was eight uh, about a future, um, uh, I guess you could say, extinction-level event oh. um, on Earth in which something went seriously wrong with the atmosphere. Um, and it caused essentially a, uh, an ice age, not only an ice age, but a toxic ice age because apparently whatever happened – caused lots of industrial accidents, which made the atmosphere unbreathable. Um, now, it could have been a nuclear war. It could have been something else. But whatever it was, um, the governments of the world had known it was going to happen in advance, and they had prepared these underground cities. There weren't enough of them for everybody. There was a lottery. Some people got in. I was one of those people in the dream. Uh, and so I went... And this is this, when you're eight. I was eight, yeah. And um, so in this dream... Uh, we lived in these cities, and it was a kind of miserable institutional you know, existence uh, with no sunlight, no fresh air, um, with everything being controlled by these kind of government authorities. You can kind of imagine FEMA on steroids. Anyway, me and the other scientists and technical people down there decided we'd start testing the air quality to see if it would be safe to go out. And so we started doing tests, and over a long period of time, we we charted the air quality improving. Now, remember, I was eight. I didn't know about any of this stuff. Um, but anyway, we did air quality sampling and, and made charts and graphs and did statistics. And um, eventually, we, we figured out it, it was time. It would be in a couple of years um, that we could move back out. Um, and yeah, I mean, it is kind of like Logan's Run or THX 1138. There's a lot of similarities, strangely enough. Um, but anyway, uh, we, we figured out it would be safe to leave. Um, and we told um, the oh, wait, wasn't, wasn't there a film with Deep Impact where they buried, uh, buried, where they sequestered hundreds of thousands of people in deep salt mines somewhere in the Midwest? I don't know about that one, but it's probable. Uh, anyway, so we figured out it'd be safe to leave. We also figured out that these cities had been built in permafrost, and as the atmosphere was gradually warming up, um, they were sinking, oh. and, and eventually the air intakes were going to go under the mud. And so, not only you know was it safe to leave in a couple of years, but but a few a few years after that, everybody would have to leave or they would die. So we told the government people, and they said, no, 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 that's not true. Don't 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 make people worry. Don't cause panic. Anyway, we went. We a couple of us left anyway to try to find a base camp, and we did. Long story short, um, later we went back convinced people to come. We took medical equipment and everything else with us. Um, 
brought about 100 people, and the people who stayed, nobody, everybody else died. Um, so then we were sort of living in these caves, and we didn't know if we were the, the only people left on Earth. We had no radio, there was no electronics, there was no power. Um, so we decided we had a responsibility to try to record everything that we knew from the previous world, because we were the last generation oh that lived there. And so uh, we decided to do this by interviewing everybody and recording everything they knew in these books. Um, and I became the first keeper of the book. And, and this is all in this dream when you're in this eight one dream, years. Yeah. Now, was this a recurring dream night after night or was it? No, it was just one dream. And then actually I died in the dream. Um, and then my next life I was, I guess, my descendant who was the next keeper of the book. And then it just kind of went on like that for something like 100 different lifetimes. Uh, and gradually, you know, kind of with each lifetime, the atmosphere is getting better and plants were growing again. And, you know, they were starting to build more of a civilization. And, uh, you know, it gradually kind of grew this new, small civilization, which was all oriented around, you know, capturing everybody's wisdom and storing their, their wisdom for the future. And so that was a dream that I had when I was eight. I didn't know what to make of it. I mean, a lot of that stuff was above my comprehension level at that time. Um, but I remember it perfectly. You know, I remember it all my life. I remember it now. Um, I remember it, you know, better than a normal memory. Let's put it that way. And so when I got it's older, almost I, like you were getting some kind of a download. Yeah, it was, all I can say is a very strange thing. I mean, because it was many lifetimes and I lived the lives. I mean, I, you know, went through a long period, you know, whole lifetimes. Right. But then I woke up and it was just one night. Uh, so anyway, um, wow. you know, I don't want to use too much time on that. You can read about it in more detail later on my blog. But when I got older, um, I thought about this again and I, I was working in um, technology internet mostly around knowledge management and big data uh, and I thought well you know I wonder what would happen you know if something really bad happened on earth what would happen to everything we knew and you know it sort of came back to me and I started remembering the dream and thinking well maybe we should find a way to preserve all this knowledge that we have and so I started researching how to do it we came up with this crazy idea well why you know maybe we should put it make an off-site backup and so, you know, where would we do that? Well, we thought, let's try the moon. And what should we send there? Well, let's send the Wikipedia. So then we started researching how to do that. And how would you actually preserve the Wikipedia on the moon? And we, we found out there really was no technology um, that could do that because the harsh environment of space and particularly on the moon, you know, all existing forms of storage would be just destroyed in, you know, days or months. So, um, we continued to look for a solution to this and eventually found some technology that was developed at Los Alamos to, to preserve data in the case of a nuclear war. Um, and that is writing the data into nickel um, using a nanotechnology process because nickel um, is an element. It has a high melting temperature. Uh, it's you know, completely immune to electromagnetic pulses. Uh, and so anyway, we located a few different scientists who could do it and we started working with them. And um, we ended up making um, these disks. And then while we were doing that, uh, we actually met another scientist who was doing an, another generation of technology in quartz crystal, um, which is also a very stable way of storing data. What, what years um, was this? Oh, gosh. I mean, this was, um, was probably 2016, 2017, that time frame. Okay. We started working on this stuff. And then um, we ended up making in quartz. Uh, and by the way, we hadn't figured out how to get to the moon yet. 
but uh, we, started making, we started making in courts uh, some, some tests, and one of them was the Isaac Asimov Foundation Trilogy, which we thought was a very appropriate test. Um, and then one day I was watching Twitter, and I just happened to see Elon Musk tweeting about sending his cherry red Tesla as a, as a test payload on the Falcon Heavy test launch. And I tweeted to him and said, hey, you know, we, we put the Foundation Trilogy in courts. Why don't you send it? And we had this little interaction in front of 20 million people, and he agreed to, agreed to send it. So uh, we ended up sending the Foundation Trilogy in the glove compartment of his Tesla, which is now, um, because he actually missed Mars, he, he wanted to hit Mars, but he missed it, um, uh, which is good for us. Uh, it's now orbiting the solar system for at least 50 million years, maybe longer. The math doesn't go longer. It just gets imprecise after that. But it won't hit anything for at least 50 million years. Anyway, after that... But then it could either hit something or be ejected by an encounter at the right angle with a planet. Uh, yeah, I mean, it depends. It depends if it hits something or doesn't. I mean, it's, it may not hit something. So, so if it's ejected, it becomes an interstellar emissary library <laughs> traveling forever. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it could travel forever. Okay. Uh, but anyway, so then we ended up um, starting to book some some missions on these private, uh, well, book payloads on these private missions. Um, and so, um, you know, we 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 managed to convince the Israelis with Beersheet to carry us. Um, we sent an enormous uh, 30 million page library in nickel. Um, it crashed on the moon. We think it's actually intact there. And then you told me afterwards, by the way, Hoagland, your book was among the archives. Yeah, your book is on it. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. As well as, you know, in those 30 million pages, we have ten, tens of thousands of books, something like 30,000 books. You know, the Wikipedia, uh, an index of all known languages, the you know, histories, encyclopedias, dictionaries, textbooks, you know, just everything we could get. Um, well, you so, know that even though the spacecraft crashed, that archive is in perfect condition, right? We believe that is the case because it, you know, it was essentially stronger than, you know, um, stronger than the spacecraft in many ways. <laughs> um, and it was also on a, it was, it was also not bolted on. It was actually taped onto the aircraft with capped on tape um, on the inside of the spacecraft. Um, and it was a fairly thin, somewhat flexible object. Um, so, you know, if depending on the angle at which the spacecraft hit, and it hit at a very oblique angle, uh, it was probably flung, just flung downrange, maybe, you know, some number of kilometers downrange, and is sitting there, you know, somewhere on some <laughs> moon dune, um, <laughs> sitting there. So we'll never probably be able to find it. Oh, you know, someday, somebody's going to go and look someday. Well, I hope they, I hope they do, but they better leave it there. I was going to say you need to read somewhere in the rules, like the, rules the Smithsonian can't go and pick this stuff up without your permission or something. It's our property; it has to remain on the moon. Um, but anyway, after that, um, we then um, booked a mission with Astrobotic, and as you know, as you said, Astrobotic. So wait, wait. Bereshit was the first mission. Yeah. It crashed, but the archive is there. And it will last. Moon. It will last millions of years, if not longer. Um, yeah, on the moon, on the surface of the moon, if it's exposed to directly to space, um, it would last about 50 million years because um, everything, every inch of the moon is completely pulverized by micrometeorites within about a 50 million year time frame. Yeah. However, 
um, if it is not directly exposed to the angle at which the micrometeorites hit, um, maybe there's a rock in front of it or it's slightly underground because it's you know, maybe hit the ground or maybe the spacecraft is in front of it or you know, maybe it's covered by something, then it could last a lot longer. So it really depends on you know, precisely where it is, the angle. If it's in a crater or on the side of a hill, you know, maybe nothing will hit it. It could last a lot longer. It really depends because the micrometeorites hit from a certain angle. Anyway, um, we, we then did a mission, a 60 million page archive um, with Astrobotic. Um, and, uh, you know, as you know, it didn't make it. And the reason it didn't make it actually is because of this propulsion anomaly where um, there was a leak and, and NASA was afraid that if they actually used the, the, the main propulsion, it, it might explode and cause a, lot, a debris field. Um, so they could, they had enough fuel to probably reorient the spacecraft and get it into some kind of solar orbit, but it was too risky to um, use the main engines because it, if there was an explosion, it could cause a debris field that would be a risk to other spacecraft. Um, so they decided not to, they scrubbed it, um, and they, they crashed it into the South Pacific, where we may now also be deposited because we wouldn't have burned up most likely um, because of the, again, the high melting temperature of nickel. Anyway, um, so it we, came in over the South Pacific. This is a Peregrine mission. Uh, as a shooting star, it's something like 35,000 feet per second, 25, 26,000 miles an hour. And it's probably sitting on the bottom of the Pacific Ocean now. Yeah, possibly, possibly on the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, you know, encased in some melted spacecraft <laughs> materials. Um, so we'll see. Uh, and then. Uh, well, we should tell Abby Logan you can go and pick it up. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then we booked, you know, this, we have this other mission, um, you know, as you know, well, inside of GLL's payload on intuitive machines, where again we sent, um, you know, a, and GLL a again archive. is Galactic what? Galactic Legacy Labs. Legacy Labs. Okay. Galactic Legacy Labs. Yeah, and it's inside the Lunar Prize payload. The Lunar Prize payload is uh, contains lunograms um, from people all over the world. <laughs> content, images, all kinds of different things. Um, and then we have the arc mission pay, uh, layers underneath it. Um, I'll tell you what, hold it there. We're at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Nova Spivak. We're talking about private enterprise missions to the moon. And the missions to the moon are going to tell us a lot if they survive. You're at the other side of midnight my name is Richard C. Hoagland, and here is one of my favorite songs, which kind of makes the whole point tonight. We shall return.
the other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, February 17th of 2024. You're listening to a program which uh, is kind of, you know, it, 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 it's kind of um, reminiscent of some of my activities at the Cape many decades ago. Uh, we called this tonight, They're Trying It Again. Uh, are there any bets? Because we're talking about the United States, or at least a U.S. corporation returning to the moon for the first time in over half a century, over 50 years. And the odds are about 50-50 based on recent history that they're not maybe going to make it again. But regardless of whether the spacecraft succeeds and lands softly and sets its payloads down and instrumentation can be turned on and science can be gleaned, NOVA's archive, the ARC mission archive, will survive. It will be there. If it's on the surface, it'll last at least 50 million years. And if it's somewhat buried underneath the regolith, uh, it'll last even a lot longer. So regardless of what happens, NOVA, your mission to the moon is probably going to succeed, even if it is taking the long way home. No, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, all right. Um, So let's get into some of the details. How did you wind up hooking up with intuitive machines? And and what is this galactic uh, archive that's come up as, as, you know, companion to the ARC Foundation? And in other words, give us some background as to how this has become a cottage industry. Sure. Well, first of all, um, you know, we don't have any relationship with intuitive machines. Um, we have a, the Archbishop Foundation uh, is a nonprofit. We have a relationship with Galactic Legacy Labs, 
um, which is uh, in contract with Intuitive Machines for their payload. And Galactic Legacy Labs uh, included the ARC mission um, as their charitable cause uh, in their payload. So a portion of the revenues they get from um, what they do um, is donated to the ARC Mission Foundation to support our work. Hmm. So um, that's how we ended up on that mission. Um, and Galactic Legacy Labs is sending something called the Luna Prize, which is this sort of cultural archive uh, you know, of, of, of culture, uh, all kinds of different aspects of culture. People uh, submitted um, images um, and essays and, I don't know, music, all kinds of stuff. And um, that's sort of above us um, in several layers of the of this nickel archive. And then um, we are below it. And the data is a combination of uh, digitally encoded data and analog etchings, all done at nanoscale, um, some of which are visible uh, with a microscope. Um, and um, it's kind of grown atom by atom in this nickel layers, and the layers are put together into this stack, um, which the whole thing kind of looks like a DVD, and it's about as thick as a DVD, but it's really more like 25 DVDs um, and some analog layers as well, kind of all stuck together. Well, let's kind of get into that because to me, you know, it, it's one thing to say, okay, we're going to set up a, a library. The problem is your readership. If, 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 well, we don't have to worry about anybody not returning books. Well, that's true. Uh, but in this case, you have to plan for a future civilization that may not even know that we, you, existed. English or any of the current languages on Earth will be or could be passe. In other words, how do you create an archive either for distant humans who don't even know their, their heritage right. or aliens, ETs, who, of course, will know nothing, presumably, about Earth or our turgid history. In other words, how do you create a universal library so anybody without almost any technology can begin to read and move through the process of expanding the whole hundreds of millions of pages? Right. So... Um... Actually, we've put a lot of time into that um, for several decades, I guess, thinking about this. Um, so what we've built is what we call the ARC Mission Primer. Um, and the primer consists of kind of a staircase of knowledge. So it starts with um, all of the different visual encyclopedias and visual dictionaries um, that were ever created uh, in multiple languages. Um, so you have pictures that connect to words in multiple languages for, for most of the kind of core concepts, let's say about a million core concepts, you know, everything there, everything kind of common sense knowledge would cover, you know, houses and cars and, you know, people and buildings and plants and animals and you know, geography, et cetera, et cetera. So all of these concepts are connected to words. So we start with images that uh, goes to words in five languages. And then from there, we have and, and the images are literally inscribed in these nickel sheets, mm -hmm. these plates, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. They're photo, yeah. They're black and white photo quality images in nickel. So like, all like you would micro, need, like microfilm. So all you would need would be a magnifying glass or a dumb microscope 
you would need a microscope that we could have, you know, would have had in the 1700s. So a, mm. an objective lens microscope, but not a very powerful microscope. You know, about 100x, 30 to 100x magnification, you can see it. So if in uh, 25 million years some ET lands and finds these things on the moon, how will they know it's something they should preserve and to look at? Well, um, the top layer has sort of holographic um, diffraction patterns on it that, uh, and, 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 and larger, um, larger logos and letters. Um, in, in this particular payload, it has, it has, I think, 30 million digits of pi written out. Um, oh, and other things. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, it, you know, there's a lot of, let's say, interesting things on the surface of this object. So it's like a, it's like attention. a super version of the pioneer 10 plaque mm-hmm. that Eric Burgess and Sagan and exactly. I worked on to send to the stars. Exactly. So it's, it's, you know, very interesting and definitely implies that there's some data in it. Um, and then, you know, when you look closely at it, um, you know, you see how it's made and you can see there's all these different layers and you can take them apart carefully um, they're they're kind of held together. In this case, they're kind of just bolted onto the lander, so they're bolted together. There's some, I think, a small amount of epoxy resin on the edges to hold it together as well. Um, but anyway, you you can take these layers apart, and then um, some of these layers are digital, um, which basically is a DVD format, um, and some of them are analog, um, which are more of these etchings. Um, and the idea with the primer is it teaches you first with images to words. Um, kind of what what consensus reality is for us, uh, and then it has translations um, between all known languages. So it has um, this this kind of panlex data set, which includes kind of all known languages with translations between them, um, living and dead languages. Um, so we go from five languages to then all known languages, and then underneath that are um, the most important. Uh, articles in the Wikipedia, so many thousands of articles um, in English. Um, and then below that, um, we then have um, important books um, and information necessary um, for, inco- for decoding the digital layers, including everything you need to know to build a computer, all the data standards, all the formats, all the codecs, everything you need um, to, you know, get access to the digital layers, which contain a lot more. Um, so the analog layers teach what you need to get the digital layers, and then the digital layers you know, have a lot more data in them. Um, and then you know, in the digital layers, you have the full Wikipedia, you have you know, 30,000 books, um, data sets, you know, genomes, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> well, I want to talk about the Earth in this context in a minute, but I want to start with the moon. Because the one thing I think you can count on is that whoever finds this will be a representative of a very sophisticated uh, technological civilization, right? One would think, yes. Well, yeah, we can... We I mean, can... if they can get to the moon, either from Earth or from somewhere else, they probably don't need help understanding computers, um, and they probably have m- something much better than a magnifying glass. So I think... <laughs> It won't be a big problem for them to gain, to gain access to the data and, and make sense of it. And the reason we designed it with this primer on top is to anchor the data in something um, that maybe we have in common with them, which is eyes. 
And we have to assume that they can at least see something. Um, and so, yeah, of course, you know, we, we can tie, you know, this. this well, don't we have two independent cases on Earth of independent evolution of the same kind of eye structure? According to the biologists, that's interesting. It, that's possible. I'm not aware of the details uh, on that. Google is plausible. your friend. To me, yeah. this is very reassuring because it means that any any ET civilization or future descendants, however, you know, even from cockroaches, will have to have eyes to manipulate the spectrum. And we have an example where, in the in the geological record, the eye development occurred independently, at least according to my sources, twice. Hmm. Which, well, is very, which is very reassuring because it means that eyes are the way to survival, and that means that your archive can be seen and read by almost anybody you can imagine. Yeah. Now, we also have to make some assumptions about scale, um, you know, because um, it might be that they're very small and that, you know, they arrive on the moon and these archives are like gigantic cities to them and they don't realize they're archives. Or they also could be very large and, you know, these are insignificantly small. Um, it's also possible that they could be some kind of nickel-eating species, and to them this is just a tasty treat. <laughs> so there's a lot of ifs. Um, we had to make some assumptions about, you know, a certain range of forms of life um, that we designed this for, and we just hope that, you know, we're right about that. Did you think in terms of incorporating any radioactive isotopes to give people, whoever finds this, an idea of how old it is? Um, that is a good idea. Um, actually, um, in some of our archives, not this one, not the one, the one on intuitive machines, um, we did not do this. But in some of our other archives, we have carbon datable materials in between the layers. Well, that gives you like 50,000 years. Yeah, so it wouldn't take it wouldn't give us that much time. Um, in terms of isotopes, that's a good idea. Maybe we'll do that in the future. Well, there are all kinds of daughter-parent relationships that are unique that could be both unique in terms of a marker, like when mm. some distant scientist finds and says, "Well, this can't be natural." Well, we do put markers. I will tell you this: um, in the primer, um, we also have a, an epoch marker. Um, where we have, I, we put all the, um, a whole bunch of star charts from uh, the, all the positions of the planets in the solar system to um, locations of other stars around the solar system at the time that this was delivered. How about the positions of the continents on the planet, on the Earth? Oh, yeah, we have all of that, too. So um, they would be able to, you know, perhaps um, figure out the approximate time that this was sent by by all of the because the time marker that Sagan and Drake decided for the plaque was the uh, pulsar uh, mm. map, and the mm. pulsars, of course, are spinning down slowly. So, if you look at them now, whenever they pick it up, and then you look at the the the, the plaque, they could calculate yeah, well, we back. Have that, we we have that too because we sent their plaque as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we sent you know the photos photos of the plaque, and so. You know, anything that was there that was publicly available, um, we included. Um, so there's a lot of different ways you'd probably be able to figure out um, the approximate period of time in which this, this thing was created. So, yeah. So, I mean, how does it feel to be involved in a project which literally could outlast the Earth? 
before it gets read. <laughs> really? It's, it's great. I mean, it's talk about a legacy. You know, <laughs> it's it's a great it's a great one um, for us and everybody else is included. Um, and there are a massive number of people that are included and don't even know it. Um, and we've done we've kept it very secret. Well, you didn't tell me until you casually no. dropped it in one conversation in an afternoon. Oh, by the way, your book's on the moon. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, there's a massive amount of you know when you're talking about 60 million pages. Um, so you could imagine that you know there's a there's there's a huge number of people, whether they're you know authors or artists or musicians or scientists or you know, people who've published things. Um, that were important um, in their field, um, and we've preserved them in the library. But we haven't said anything about it publicly um, because we just don't want to cause, you know, there's also people who might you know, have copyright concerns. Of course, we're not redistributing their content, um, you know, within copyrightable time spans. I was going to say in 50 million years, copyright yeah. runs out. It does. <laughs> um, but, you know, you know, there's just so much politics i mean you, even with libraries on earth um, but when you're making a permanent library there's so much politics we just decided what's the benefit you know to really publishing all the details of what's in it since it's not for the people of this time anyway um, some people know that they're in it uh, all of our advisors partners um, and and many of our friends um, know that they're in it um, but there's you know a, a huge number of, of of people that are preserved um, their work is preserved, and um, you know that's good. That's a good thing. I could see a huge planetary guessing game. Are you included? Yeah. Are you well, included? Chances are, if it's any, if it's if it's important in its field, it's in there. Now, do you have music? Do you have like Taylor Swift? <laughs> There's lots of uh, important, popular music by leading artists, both uh, living and dead. Okay. Well, with all those pages, you've got tons of books. Well, we have more than just pages. There's also digital storage, which is, you know, that's doesn't true. include that's pages. True. So, you know, there's large amounts of all forms of important media and content um, covering everything. All subjects, all topics, all fields, all languages, all cultures, all civilizations, everything. Um, so it's a very good library. I mean, you know, it's a university quality library, um, you know, on these little metal discs. Wow. Okay, yeah. let's let's now look at the other side of the problem to the other end of the telescope. How many of these archives, these libraries, have you sent out like little, you know, dust motes or thistles, like Sagan would blow in the camera, right. you know, in Cosmos? How many of these are somewhere out there tonight waiting? Well, I mean, right now, um, you know, there's, there's one shipwreck on the moon. Bereshit. Yeah, there's possibly one in the South Pacific. There's one en route to the there's one en route to the moon, right? right. Um, and then uh, uh, just a, a few months ago, um, actually last month, we we uh, deposited one inside of a um, a tunnel system in a research facility in a mountain in Switzerland. Um, so that's now. Oh, now uh, see that raises a whole other bunch of problems because. Although we can guarantee that the only people to pick the ones up on the moon or orbiting the sun, if you ever get you know those up there, will be picked up by very sophisticated technological civilizations. The ones on Earth, how do you 
assuming a fall and then a re-emergence of civilization, and you can't know when these will be discovered, mm-hmm. how do you make sure that a pre-technical civilization right. knows the, the first thing about what this could be and what jewels right. it contains, et cetera? In other words, that seems right. to me to be the 10,000 times yeah. bigger problem. Yeah, I mean, for for the for the archives on Earth, I mean, we also have one in a lava tube in in Hawaii, um, which was an experimental Mars EVA, right? Um, the place it in there. Um, but anyway, for these ones on Earth, which we will have more of over time, um, we hope to also include tools like microscopes, for example, and other equipment, maybe sealed in nitrogen-filled containers, perhaps, um, to try to preserve them. Um, so that we can we can include some equipment and other things with them um, to to make it at least make the analog portions retrievable. But wait 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 wait! If you're including equipment, the equipment has to survive as long as the library. Yeah, exactly. And how but, do you devise well, a machine technology from the 21st century which exactly. will survive a hundred thousand well, years? And, and that's the benefit of the analog layers because you only need optics to retrieve that. So we can include the optics, right? We can include we can include the lenses. We can include microscope materials that are just made of metal. You don't need to make them out of plastic, right? So you can have you know glass optics and metal microscope components, um, and you can read the analog layers. Now the digital layers, you know, even if you read the analog layers, you might not know what they mean or be able to figure out how to build computers um, to retrieve the Uh, digital layers. And for that, uh, we've looked at a lot of different strategies. I mean, one is to try to preserve some computers, um, but they would also need power. Um, And they wouldn't last that long. I mean, you could probably seal them in like nitrogen gas containers, um, you know, completely shielded from the elements. You mean here on Earth? Yeah. Because on on the moon or in space, the best preserver is the vacuum. No, no, no. We don't need to do that in space. Right. On Earth... Um, if we were going to include tools, um, we might want to include, you know, some some computers. It, it gets complicated though because you know, computers are are mostly carbon-based materials. They're not going to last that long, one way or the other. No matter how you preserve them, they'll eventually decay. Um, furthermore, they need power, and so then if you try to provide the power supply or maybe solar power. Um, or some other kind of power supply, then, you know, again, you have the same issues. So, Well, you have you, the problem of instructions for people that have no technological perception. Right. Well, you know, I mean, the ultimate goal is kind of like contact, where we, we create a kind of virtual reality. You find this thing and you're interacting with an AI that figures out your level of technology and teaches you what you need to know to get to the next level. Wait, wait you mean that's part of your prospectus? We would like to do that, but it's obviously very difficult um, for many reasons. He, says, reason, which he is, says casually. Yes, casually. <laughs> yes, but it's how, very difficult. <laughs> it's very difficult. Uh, the main issue is not really making the AI. We can already do that. Um, the issue is really how do you preserve exactly. the machine? How do you preserve the machine so that it runs you know, in 100,000 years or a million years? Um, because things decay on Earth, they oxidize. See, one of the interesting exercises of, of your whole, you know, mission here <clears throat> is to push the technology so we can perpetuate ourselves a hundred thousand million years ahead. Right. 
Well, believe me, we're really thinking about that, and we're, of course, open to ideas. Um, you know, how could you do that? Now, another storage media, by the way, that's uh, maybe more recoverable in some ways than digital layers is to use DNA as a storage media. Um, I tend to think of DNA as kind of the, the open data standard um, that biology has created. Um, so, you know, any carbon-based, DNA-based life form, you know, that was advanced would probably know how to, to detect and read DNA. But wouldn't preserving DNA in a terrestrial environment with, with you know, granitic rocks and radioactivity and solar flares and well, galactic cosmic rays and supernova, yeah. isn't that a huge problem? Because DNA <laughs> well, is fragile. Yeah, it is. But we've, we've sort of created this artificial amber. Um, which is basically epoxy, um, and we can put it into that. Um, it can actually then later be recovered from it. And then if you put that inside of metal, um, you're shielding it pretty well. Um, and amber lasts a long time. Epoxy is even stronger. Um, so actually, we can preserve DNA. I think we can encapsulate it and preserve it for a long time. You can also put the DNA into little glass beads inside the epoxy. It's even more. See, when Eric and I brought the idea of the plaque to, um, to Sagan, that JPL, um, after we'd actually seen the Pioneer spacecraft down at TRW, what, he told us that they had a five-pound overage. They had to take some instrument off, and they had five missing pounds that they could put an archive on Pioneer. And so Eric and I said, well, you got to send a lot of stuff. I mean, five pounds mm-hmm. is a huge That's amount, a, a huge That's amount. Huge. Yeah. And we, we talked about things like DNA and all that, and Sagan dashed cold water on it. He said – it will never survive in interstellar space, so it's pointless. It's got to be metal. Well, it, it's got to it, be inscribed. It depends how it's encapsulated. Well, they, well, they didn't have a lot of time to test. If we put – in our case, you know, we did send on other missions, not on, the, not on the intuitive machines mission, but other missions, we did send DNA, hmm. actual DNA. Well, inadvertently. <laughs> no, uh, both inadvertently and advertently. Um, <laughs> Is there so, an advertently? I don't know, but we did send um, we did send actual DNA, um, human DNA. We it was rumored we sent some tardigrades, um, but we yeah. did send actual. Yeah, I heard human that rumor. Yes, yes. Yeah, and we sent synthetic DNA as well, um, and the synthetic DNA encoded data. So we actually have the whole Wikipedia also encoded in DNA, by the way, in synthetic DNA. So did um, you do the background science? Like if we if we package it in these layers, it will last mm-hmm. this long. Yeah, I mean, we did we did some research on that. I don't have a tip of my tongue, but um, you know, the many layers of nickel with epoxy, and then you also have to figure in a spacecraft around it with its layers. Right. Um, I think the DNA would be quite well shielded, quite well shielded. Hmm. Yeah. But so our case, idea comes to fruition decades later. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. What an and idea. So, and so similarly on Earth, I think um, in some ways it's, you have different problems, um, but um, a lot less radiation. So we, at least we, we don't have that problem. At least we hope we don't have that problem. Well, you know, um, it, it's really eerie to listen to you talking about this because when Eric and I did, of course, Eric's now gone, we were the only people apparently to approach Sagan and say, this thing is leaving the solar system. It's got to carry a message from mankind. And it evolved from there. And the big ideas we had, like the five pounds and the DNA and all that, they didn't get out there. 
But there is tonight two messages and then two records on the Voyagers that were a direct, you know, springboard from our idea. You've now taken it light years past what we could do then. And these literally should be readable in millions of years. Well, we hope so. And yeah, we were very inspired by all of that work, of course. And we, and we, write, we wrote about it in our uh, white paper. You can read my, it's like a hundred page book, actually. You can get it from my, from the Archbishop site on the uh, Lunar Library page. You can read about it. And we talk about all that. Yeah, we should probably put it up in your section of Radio with Pictures. So let's go back to the terrestrial counterpart. What what got you into the idea that if we're doing this in space, we should do it on Earth? And then how did you think Great about time. various places, sites? And we're literally at the bottom. Thank you, Keith. We're literally at the bottom of the hour. So hold it right there. My guest this morning is, is Nova Spivak. We're talking about archives of humankind, human memory human legacies, human heritage, human, you know, uh, progenitorship in terms of what we have done on Earth and what happens if Earth in some incredible cosmic problem is destroyed. Well, tonight, there are the beginnings of a series of libraries due to Nova Spivak moving through the solar system some of them will last eternally in orbit around the sun in terms of future missions. And as you hear, they contain an awful lot of stuff of humankind. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. side of midnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everybody. It is um, about the uh, bottom of the hour here, just before midnight on the Land of Enchantment. 
Switching from Saturday night to Sunday early pre-dawn, my guest this morning is Nova Spivak, and we're talking about the creation of archives, of libraries. You know, as a writer, you always try to imagine who's going to read your stuff. I can't begin to imagine as a writer writing for an audience that will only be reading it when I'm 50 million years gone. It's, it's almost impossible to imagine, A, their interests, B, what they look like, C, their, in other words, it opens up such incredible possibilities. I want to bring into the conversation now my friend and colleague in the Enterprise Mission, Andrew Curry. Andrew is, as you all know, if you listen to the show regularly, a um, very professional artist. He's done amazing artwork for the Enterprise Mission he works for Hollywood, he works in commercials, he works for private clients, he works on film, he does storyboards, he, he, he limbs out um, archives on paper. Andrew, welcome to the show, and what are your thoughts, and do you have any uh, questions you want to ask uh, Nova? Yeah, thank you, Richard, and hello, Nova, how are you? Hi, Andrew. Yeah, nice to hear you. And what a fascinating story right off the bat when you were a kid. Man, you've got to put that on a script and uh, <laughs> try to sell it. But no, fantastic. No, I, you know, it was funny. As you guys are talking, I was, my mind started wandering to, um, you know, some of the stories of like, there was that really curious story of Neil Armstrong um, going to that Ecuadorian jungle in right. Uh, 1976 and yeah yeah looking for uh what was it father what's his name father crespi fisks yeah, yeah. Gold, gold the plates tablets, the plates yeah and then there was some um, you know we have the whole story of the mormon religion being founded on joseph smith's discovery you know he basically was communicated by uh angel which angel was it richard i forget i think it was um, moroni moroni and right, he right. dug it up and found gold plates mm-hmm. so like what is what is this obsession? Okay, let me let me Andrew, let me stop you there. Since gold does not oxidize, why Nova did you not choose gold well, as opposed to nickel? Oxidize. Well, nickel doesn't oxidize either, and in fact, we also do uh, gold plating on some of them. But okay. nickel also doesn't oxidize. Okay. It's an element. Sorry, Andrew. But it's go fast, ahead. Yeah, no. Well, it just you made me want, like you know, what was Armstrong looking for? I mean, was it, you know. It, and it reminds me, like when you were talking about who would see these things, um, uh, just I think it was just as before the pandemic sort of started, we were in uh, Arizona. No, sorry, Las Vegas, uh, somewhere. <laughs> Anyways, we went to visit the, the Hoover Dam, and it, that, that's a fascinating place. And there's a really, really interesting plaque that the, uh, I guess the creator, this Oscar Hansen, who apparently designed the Hoover Dam, uh, or no, sorry, he didn't design it. Sorry, he did the artwork for the Hoover Dam, and he has this plaque there. And I'm, I want to read to you one of the things that. Oh, it's so, so replete with Art Deco all over the place. Yeah, and a star star chart. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 very interesting. He, so let me read to you just this is message for the ages. Hoover Dam belongs to the sagas of the daring. Oscar J W Hansen. So he was the artist that did this work. Uh, Oscar J.W. Hansen created the winged figures of the Republic and inlaid terrazzo surface, which you see here. That's at, at the Hoover Dam. He believed that the orientation of many ancient buildings on Earth included messages from their builders to people of the future. 
he designed the art on the Monument Plaza with that in mind. And, and there's a few other little statements here. It says, the terrazzo surface of Monument Plaza includes a star chart. It is a view of the heavens on September the 30th, 1935, the day the dam was dedicated. The chart will allow people, and then in parentheses, or aliens, close parentheses, from thousands of years in the future to calculate the date of the dedication. Wait, wait, wait. This is, on, this is on a plaque in 1935? It's sitting – yeah, you can go and visit this, Richard. It's it mentions right aliens as someone that might read it. Yeah, and then another part says Oscar J.W. Hansen. This is on the plaque again. Repeated the astronomical theme of the star chart in the Zodiac design just behind the sign. Did he intend it to be another guidepost for future visitors from another world? So this is right on their their artwork. So it's fascinating that you, you know, you're discussing what kind of – you know, potential being could could sort of view your materials down down the road it's because this. I don't know. Just have yeah, a that's really on. cool. I mean, he might have also been thinking about just future inhabitants of the Earth. I mean, you know, something like the Hoover Dam could be like a pyramid. It could last a really long time. And I think yeah, that's but exactly... to mention aliens on the plaque—that's pretty obvious. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just just kind of fascinating because, um, you know, like with all the the, the kerfuffle now about you know, disclosure and stuff. Do you, do you guys ever, like in your travels, you know, do you ever sort of cross into that boundary line? Like in the parties, is there a bit of a joke? Like, hey, we're about to go say hello to the, you know. Well, uh, I mean, of course, anybody doing anything in space is, will probably uh, intersect with that topic. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I know a lot of people who are serious researchers in that, in that arena. Um, I'm, fascinated by it. I mean, I, I have a very open mind and I, I think that there's a tremendous amount of evidence that, you know, there may have been and might still be, you know, other advanced civilizations in our solar system, possibly even on our planet um, or in it. And, you know, we just, we don't have enough data to really decide either way. But I think, you know, as we've seen, no, the government's now taking it pretty seriously. Uh, so there's, there's probably something going on. Um, and I think obviously Richard has a lot to say on that subject as well. <laughs> just just well, a there's, few things. Yeah. Oh, right. yeah, well, there's, there's even, just even a few years ago, there was an interesting study that came out, and I can't remember who did it. It was some university. And Richard, you'll remember this. They were talking about um, sort of geological signatures. If, if, giant if, there were previous civilizations on this earth, I mean, speaking about your you know, your memory. Well, I mean, it was a dream, but, and one of the things they talked about is they said, well, if we suddenly went extinct now that within our geological uh, 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 levels, you would have a signature, carbon signature, whatever the, you know, and all the chemicals and plastics and stuff would show up, you know, as, Oh, this was an industrial age. And in fact, I think in the article, Richard, they were mentioning, there are some curious moments in earth history that kind of hint that something unusual was there now no one's willing to obviously say yeah it was like we had a higher civilization and then it fell down again but there were these sort of notable um one at least i don't remember the time span or when it happened but where they did see a similar uh what they think we could look like if we were to go extinct and then in that same article they t discussed a big interest by you know scientists in the future to study these kinds of things on planets such as Venus and Mars. 
so there's this, you know, so you're right. Like, I mean, not only could there be, um, you know, future some things coming our way, but maybe we're just, you know, maybe your memories, I'm, I'm not telling you what it is, but it, it, <laughs> they could be memories. You know, they might ancient. be. Yeah, they yeah. might be. They might be. It's possible. Um, I, I definitely think that, um, you know, we're, we are designing what we're making for you know, future inhabitants, which might be our descendants. They might be something that evolves long after we're gone and, uh, and is not related to us. Um, or they might be you know, visitors from somewhere else. Interesting. It, it's, just a, it's just a staggering thought. It really, you know, the more I think about it, the more staggering it becomes. Now, given the moon environment, you know, your archive on this mission is going to be uh, kind of catch as catch can. Is it going to work or is it not going to work? Well, the question is, is it going to land? Because that's what I, I mean. Yeah. I, I think something like, as you, as you pointed out, about 50% of attempted moon landings seem to be failing. Um, all private attempts have failed so far. Um, so, you know, the odds don't look too good. Well, particularly if you look at the environment. Anyway, Andrew, before we get into any of that, anything else you want to bring up? Yeah, there was one more thing. when Richard, when we were going through your items, um, your number two on the show page. Uh, can we go there just for a second? Yeah, sure. Just, sure. Yeah, this is. I, I know it's a little bit of a sidetrack, but I'm curious, Nova, because you're in the mix, right? And and I, I don't know what you observe, or I'm, well, I get the sense that you have an eye for detail, of course. Mm-hmm. But if if you scroll down to Intuitive Machines, um, oh yeah, their uh, Twitter. There's a Twitter. Like if you open up that article and you hit that Twitter site. And they have four images coming across. And uh, the second image is a shot of the probe. And it has the intuitive logo shining kind of in the sun. And then there's an American flag and it says NASA. And sandwiched between – is there but do you know where I'm looking, Richard? And Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, well, actually, it's, it's even in the article. You just scroll down from the top of, this, of the Engadget uh, article that I chose yeah. – and you see a panel of four images. The one yeah. you're talking about is the upper right. Yeah, and, and smack dab in the middle is, is Columbia. Now, that's Columbia Sportswear. And I did a little quick little search because I was like, oh, because I've done, as Richard said, I, I'm a storebird artist. And I've done different things, a lot of commercials. And I've done Columbia Sportswear in the past. <laughs> so I was very curious about, oh, what's their involvement? And I looked it up. And apparently they had a they, they have a partnership with Intuitive uh, Machines, and basically they created a some sort of well, let me read it here because I'm going to screw it up if I don't. Um, they they created a uh, uh, well their their partnership was announced in 2021, and let me just read this out. Their partnership was seen as a way to quote test our technologies in the most extreme conditions, and find ways to innovate beyond our customers current needs, unquote. This came from the uh, VP of Innovation, Hasker uh, Beckham. Now, on one level, I mean, that's really intriguing. And, and apparently, it's some sort of insulating material that they created to help protect the, 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 uh, the probe from the extreme temperatures. And so on, on one level, we, you know, Richard kind of hinted at it when he said, you know, uh, an enterprise mission, right? I mean, we're just seeing more and more of these <laughs> Well, we are, and now we're seeing. Lo- this, this looks like a hot, like 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 a soccer jersey in Europe, you know. Like I was going to say, is this an ad, guys, 
for a future sports wear on the moon. <laughs> or, 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 or clothing that will you know, be able to handle hostile environments. So, so there's that. There's the whole element of we're really seeing a, a big uptick on you know, startup companies and groups that really are trying to get their you know, foothold in, in space. And, and you know, you've been piggybacking with them. And we, we noted um, uh, on the show a few weeks ago, Nova, that in the Peregrine uh, space, which I believe it was that one, part of their payload was a Bitcoin that was going to go to the moon and also a some, I forget what it was called Richard a ghost plate that was like was either a copy of the original print a way to mine a goal of a bitcoin I can't remember exactly what but it was these very intriguing very you know uh, you know um, market orientated symbolic you know um, things that were going to be plunked down on the moon and I guess didn't make it because they burned up. And so these are all signals, but there's, there's another layer here. I mean, if you kind of move towards a, you know, a, a higher symbology, Columbia or Colum is um, in some people's minds um, sort of pointing at uh, a serpent cult worship, you know, an ancient cult, you know, again, if you want to go to that level and it's just interesting that that's a prominent, like this would be like a David Icke thing, right? Like, uh, uh, and, and other people who talk about this, that a lot of names are very symbolic. And I guess I just wanted to ask you, have, did you notice like in any of the parties or anything where you, you know, like, is there any kind of intonation at, 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 at using symbols or ritual? Because often on this show with Richard, he, he, as you probably know, he, he notes that NASA has a, seems to be steeped in um, some kind of strange celestial spirituality let's just put it that way or at least they're honoring something and to me this this columbia yeah sure it, it, it's obviously a good partnership and it's about free enterprise and it's about you know creating a, a material that's going to protect the spaceship but there's nike and there, there's lululemon i mean there's other companies that could have got on, on board on this too so you know i'm i'm, I'm really speculating here but you know have you ever had the sense that any of these space programs need to have certain names like you know, Richard, you, if you want to talk about Peregrine, um, you know, they're, they're, Richard, you take it from here. I'm going to bubble around. So. <laughs> I, I think, Nova, you get the idea. What do you think? Uh, I, I mean, I wouldn't really know what to say. Um, you know, certainly I haven't, I haven't noticed any, anything unusual or any trend like that. I mean, I would sort of say that, you know, like attracts like, and you're talking about space and mythology and the stars and the planets, you know, it's sort of natural to probably talk about the gods, the Greek gods, the ancient mythological gods and, and stories and to bring those metaphors into it. So, you know, that's one way you could explain it. It's just, you know, those would sort of be sort of natural metaphors or analogies to use um, when you're talking about the heavens, right? Um, but no, I mean, I haven't, I didn't notice anything strange. Um, I mean, there were, I, I don't know, there were some men in black following me around and, you know, not that I talk about it. <laughs> uh, that's a little weird, but no, nothing strange, nothing other than, well, there were these kind of reptilian beings that showed up at the party and we just thought there were people in costumes. Maybe they were. <clears throat> Is it 20 after? Yeah, no, it's 20 of. Um, okay, we've got about 10 minutes to the top of the hour. Um, the thing I wanted to get into now was, in terms of archives, is it possible – well, let's see, how do, I, how do I do this? When you had that dream all those years ago, 
Mm-hmm. Did you talk to your parents about it? Did you tell your friends? Did you did you talk about it, or did it kind of recede until it reemerged when you could do something? I think I told my parents about it, but you know, I don't think they really. I don't think I could explain it very well at, at eight years old. At eight years old, yeah. Yeah. So I think it was just like, oh, I had, you know, that's nice, sunny boy. <laughs> you know, cool. You had an interesting dream. Okay, would you like some cereal? You know, it probably wasn't a major. It wasn't. It wasn't really a notable event for them because I don't think I really explained it very well. Um, you know, I was too young to really explain it. But uh, you know, it stayed in my memory and it kind of stayed with me. And then, you know, I guess when I got older and other things happened that, that reminded me of it and brought it up and sort of touched on it, it, I started to think about it more and it started to make more sense. Okay. Yeah, hang on one second. I have a small technical problem here. Hold on. Okay, that may have fixed it, I hope. Okay, um, how am I coming across? That's my problem is my microphone is doing weird things. You guys hear me okay? Yeah, you sound yeah, fine. Yeah. Okay, okay. Um, all right, so, um, Andrew, we, you and I have discussed an awful lot of background. There's a BBC piece that I didn't put up tonight, but I'm going to put it up. Uh, next Saturday when I when I talk to Joseph, how everybody's suddenly going to the moon and there's this huge push for private enterprise, for corporations. How long, Nova, was Intuitive Machines looking at doing what they're doing right now? You know, I really don't know because, as I said, we don't really have a relationship with Intuitive Machines. We're not, you know, we're not even partners with Intuitive Machines. We're partners with Galactic Legacy Labs. So that would really be a question for them um, because they engaged with intuitive machines. We did not. Okay. Um, So I don't really know the history there or how long they were working on trying to, on their mission. I think probably a long time. These things take time. Um, You know, so I'd only be speculating. Probably, you could probably look it up. But, you know, I think this, you know, just like Astrobotic, I mean, these these are things that take a decade, you know, or more. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, working at this for, well, Astrobotic said they've been working on it for 16 years. Right, exactly. Yeah. So that's a it's long hard. time. Space is hard. Yeah. Except it shouldn't be. Landing well, on the moon should be a piece question. of cake. This is the weird question that I get asked all the time, and I don't have a good answer for it. How is it, you know, that in 1969 and the 70s, you know, we successfully landed all these rinky-dink, <laughs> low-tech, you know, I mean, staples and masking tape spacecraft, you know, on the moon successfully over and over again. We drove buggies around, you know, we did all kinds of things. We, we landed people and we brought them back to earth, you know, and we can't seem to successfully land, you know, a modern robotic spacecraft with all of our technology. What's going on there? Don't you find that really weird? I don't get it. Well, you know, the obvious answer. Maybe it's just heavier things. Have no, a no, 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 no. The obvious answer, if, you, if you're engineering, which you are, you know, very persnickety about, and it's several generations better than when you first started doing this half a century ago, if it's not working, if half of everything you try to land crashes, it's obvious that you're missing something. Yeah, but what, what are we missing now that they weren't missing then? The dome. Well, you think they knew about some dome and avoided it? Well, I have data. Remember, I like talking about all this from data. 
Okay. When when the when when NASA created Apollo, when Kennedy, you know, was seduced into creating Apollo, there was an awful lot of technology that was in the pipeline that would get to the moon before Apollo in terms of unmanned missions. And all those missions, particularly out of JPL, were converted to serve Apollo because we knew nothing about the moon. Nobody landed on it except crashed into it, the Russians and that kind of thing. You can't tell much about the bearing strength of regolith and spacecraft and foot pads and, you know, launching from the moon to get home. All of that was a complete unknown. So NASA converted this series of unmanned ideas into missions that would serve Apollo and would keep the astronauts from killing themselves when they landed, right, within, within a 10-year decade, within that limited time frame. And there were two sets of spacecraft that were, were looking at the moon. There were the landers, eventually out of JPL, Surveyor. And there were the orbiters out of uh, Langley, uh, Lunar Orbiter, which was basically a souped-up version of the Project Corona um, high-tech spy satellite technology exported to the moon, where they took photographs on long rolls of film in the spacecraft. They developed the scan, the developed images, and they sent back the modulated scans to be reconstructed on Earth in analog form uh, at JPL and 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 at uh, uh, Langley, and that all worked. And so you see this incredible, you know, visage of the moon kind of emerging from these spacecraft, and they found out with the first lunar orbiter that one of the problems you have when you're orbiting close to the moon to get high resolution images to see where it's safe to land if you're using film film is slow you know we've all you and i we've all used film right there it goes by what they used to call asa and then another unit of measure but it's not electronic it's not instantaneous not only in presentation, but in actually taking a picture, the the shortest pictures you can take to get reasonable, you know, resolution and clarity is one two hundred and fiftieth of a second. Well, if you're moving in orbit around the moon several thousand miles an hour, and you're looking down to take photographs, but the shortest photograph you can take is about one two hundred and fiftieth, it turns out that the the landscape under you the moonscape is going to be smeared because of motion between the camera and the moon while you're taking the picture so they devise a technology called image motion compensation where they literally would move the film before the uh, behind the lens at the same rate that the moon was moving beneath the spacecraft so there was relatively zero motion between the film and the moon so they could record short images that would not be smeared. And to do that, they had a technology called image motion compensation, which involved light sensors looking at the moon and adjusting the motors that move the film behind the telescope lens or the camera lens. And they found that it didn't work. This is back in, 19, in the mid-1960s. Why didn't it work? 
because something was between the surface of the moon and the spacecraft that was smearing the image motion compensation sensors. And that's in the literature. It's never been described. But in my research, I think that was their first intimation of this global glass layered dome all around the moon that they picked up inadvertently because of this lack of image motion compensation that would not work properly. And then now, there were, what would the go what ahead. Would the dome what 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 purpose would the dome serve if it existed? What would it be for? Well, that that's going to take us very far afield. We see we don't need to know that to know the effect of it on trying to land now. And I'm mostly concerned with the effects. I mean, we can speculate. There there are two levels of speculation. One is the moon was domed in as part of a solar system-wide project of a previous high-technology human civilization, older than like 30,000 years or more, that basically wanted Lebensraum. They wanted to live on real estate apart from Earth in the solar system, and the technology was so good that very cheaply with AI and you know printed technologies and printed materials and little millions of tiny nano robots you know if you have materials and energy you can make anything so you can propose an advanced ancient technology either terrestrial or et if we're looking at galactic time scales where someone domed in several not just the moon but several other uh satellites in the solar system where we see this kind of evidence for whatever reason either creating you know living room because if you if you have if you were somehow able to create an artificial atmosphere around the moon it would leak away if not replenished in around 2000 years if you if you dome in the moon the atmosphere will never leak away i mean on, on any normal technological time scale it will last millions of years depending upon the replacement of holes and panels and all that so it would become much longer lived based on the gravity field of the moon to give the moon a a bubble around it to retain an atmosphere and then you could have all kinds of cultural and technological development on the moon observed maybe by an extraterrestrial civilization as a zoo as some kind of you know preserve uh some kind of experiment I mean, again, this is incredibly speculative. The other, yes, go ahead. Top of the, top of the hour. Yeah, we're at the, we're at, see, you get me going, and I lose track of where we are. So we are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return.
TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back to the other side of midnight here in the land of enchantment, the high desert of the great American Southwest, as Art used to say. My two guests this morning are Nova Spivak, who, of course, is the father, grandfather, progenitor, creator um, of the idea of extraterrestrial libraries off Earth and now on Earth, which will preserve in almost eternal form that can last literally millions, if not tens of millions of years, certainly in outer space, certainly orbiting the sun, certainly on the moon, and even on Earth, they may last a properly designed a million years. And the idea is to encapsulate the human experience from our earliest written records up to the present when they are launched, disperse like thistles across the night so that somewhere, somehow, somewhen, someone knows that we were here. Okay, gentlemen, we are back. Let's see, where were we? Oh, you had me explaining why there might be a dome. Right. See, see, the odds of it being there is different than its use. We won't know why it's there until we find, <clears throat> sorry, Nova, their libraries. Because I don't think that we're the only ones that want to preserve our, our, our existence and our history and our philosophies and why we think we're here, any of that. For future generations, I think this is almost a common intelligence sentience inclination. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think that um, advanced civilizations probably come to the conclusion that they should do this for lots of reasons. One, um, because there is a chance, of course, of something going seriously wrong. Um, and also there's another reason, which is um, if you're going to transport uh, your civilization across interplanetary or even interstellar distances, um, you need a way to carry a lot of data with you, um, a lot of knowledge and data, um, because you're probably not going to be able to, to 
to be communicating back and forth over those distances using light. Um, you could send something with light. You could probably get there before you arrive, <laughs> so that's not very useful. Um, you know, how do you how do you actually transport all of your data across the vast distances of space? Um, so they may have come up with technologies to do that, similar to what we're using, or or probably a lot more advanced. Um, so that's you know that's one hypothesis. Another is that um, you know maybe um, they built and stored libraries locally in habitats that they established, maybe for example on the moon, perhaps. Um, and you know they're waiting for there for us to find them, um, just like lost libraries on Earth. And <laughs> it's interesting that there are a lot of lost libraries. Yeah, yeah. So it, in the human condition, in the human history, we know, like Ashurbanipal, et cetera, et cetera, that humans, leaders, royalty, kings, you know, dictators, whatever, they want to perpetuate their legacy. And some of them do it in libraries. Others do it in huge statues and effigies, like at, uh, you know, um, Abu Simbel in Egypt, et cetera, et cetera. So the, 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 the impulse of the human spirit is to forecast to the future, we were here, this is what we believed, this is who we are, right? Yeah, I think it's, 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 it's also a way of overcoming, you know, mortality and, and experience. Well, in, in a kind a of a symbolic of way, in kind of a in, symbolic, in symbolic way. way. Yeah, yeah. In a symbolic yeah. way, yeah. Okay, so, I, I, you know, look, we, we could take up hours of the show talking about why there is a dome. I want us to go to item number four in my section, independent verification of the ancient lunar dome. I've obviously been scanning the literature uh, for decades, picking up all the evidence that uh, there is for the existence of this astonishing multi-layered structure. I have enough to fill several books to decide on what to leave in and what to leave out when I, when I write this up, which I'm going to hopefully do after we get the Mars book out. Because it's time that all of these various companies and space agencies either realize what's there that keeps them crashing, or if they are keeping it secret and the crashing is deliberate. In other words, it's just a way to kind of grease the skid, spend money, get people's hopes up, but they don't really plan to, to achieve much of, of success until something else happens where people can follow and commerce can follow and all that. So if you look at my number four, this, these are two amateur astronomers separated by, I think, three or 4,000 miles. They don't know each other. They don't probably even know each other exists unless they looked on the web and did some kind of a very careful survey. The one on the left and the one on the right were taken years apart and with different technology, different telescopes, different cameras, but from different parts of the Earth looking up at the moon, with a reasonably small telescope, a 14-inch commercial reflecting telescope, these two independent amateur astronomers both recorded stunning images of the lunar dome. And what's really intriguing is that even if the colors are different, because color is very subjective and, and even electronically, it's hard to get consistency in color under different lighting, the structure, the physical layers match. 
So when you put that together with my Apollo data, with my Project Diana data, with the Russians, with the Chinese, with all of these various sources that have been in orbit around the moon and taking millions of pictures, there is this overwhelming consensus in the data that this lunar dome, this planet-wide, lunar-wide dome exists, and its only difference is in some areas it's very holy, and I don't mean sacred, I mean it's got lots and lots and lots of holes, and that's the front side, the Earth side, the side that we're looking at. And on the rest of the moon, the poles and the far side, it's in much better condition and in much better condition to stop a descending spacecraft from landing successfully. And one of the really interesting pieces of data that I pulled out of my own archive based on the camera, the telescope that Odysseus is carrying to the moon, uh, which you'll find on page 36 of their press kit, which is up in number three. If you look at my number five, on Apollo 16, uh, experimenters sent the first dedicated telescope to the surface of the moon in Apollo in, 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 in the Apollo mission. And you can see it there in my two-panel image in number five. The left-hand frame shows, I forget which astronaut in the background, it shows the lunar rover, it shows the shadow of the lunar module, shows the other, you know, uh, experimental equipment being, you know, uh, decanted from the uh, uh, MESA packages and the uh, descent stage of the lunar module. And there, kind of in the middle, is this beautiful gold-plated uh, tripod with a camera on it with a relatively large lens looking at the sky. This was a far UV telescope designed by astronomers, I believe, at the Naval Research Laboratory, which is there just uh, across the river from uh, downtown Washington, D.C. And they took a series of far ultraviolet images with electronic enhancement, meaning that they, the film recorded an electronic phosphor TV screen in the camera because this kind of UV, far UV illumination is very faint. And so they needed amplification. So it was a two-stage camera. It was electronic and then it was film to basically record what the electronics were amplifying. And if you look at the right-hand panel, this is a close-up photograph, one of dozens that they took that was brought back and I found it in the archive. It's never seen the light of day. It's never been published. We're the first, apparently, because on it from the camera, the telescope from Apollo 16, looking up at the stars, what you see is a whole bunch of crud in the sky right over the landing site, including something which you can now see enlarged in item number six, which looks like some highly geometric technological artifact suspended like a fly in amber nova over the Apollo 16 landing site. And the five is a wide angle, six is a close-up. Uh, I've tinted it to kind of represent the uh, far UV, but the geometry is what's stunning because we have other examples taken from orbit from Apollo of the same kind of castle-like mm -hmm. central turret and geometry that kind of looks like the Disney castle. 
suspended, attached to some kind of grid. You can see intimations of the grid in the close-up as well as the wide angle. And that's the kind of stuff that if, Ode uh, 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 I'll do it right, Odysseus uh, lands successfully and can use its telescope in broad daylight, it will photograph in much greater detail all over the lunar sky because they're planning a whole series of, of images of the sky. It will photograph detail like on Apollo 16, but it will transmit it live to Earth. It'll be spread through all social media and everybody is going to say, what the hell is that? Which is why I'm praying they get down through the glass and get it deployed on the surface because it's going to give us stunning color views of the dome over the south pole of the moon, over Malapart A, which is the name of the crater they're landing next to, uh, as part of the future Artemis mission to set up a lunar base at the south pole where the volatiles, where the water and the hydrogen and the organics and all the other stuff that we now know exists on the moon actually hangs out. But that's also where the glass is very dense. And so the odds of landing and getting that picture updated to the 21st century is about 50-50. Well, that image number six, that's incredible. That's a really amazing image. I mean, it's got shadows. It's got... It's I mean, a real artifact in the real incredible. dome, Nova. Yes. That's an incredible image. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that thing is really bizarre. It looks definitely technological. It's got really a lot of interesting details on it. What is that thing? It's something suspended in the dome, which is relatively low. Maybe it's like, maybe it's, you know, if the dome is there, maybe this would be some kind of dome maintenance machine that kind of crawls around the dome repairing it, perhaps. Well, all right. The way I'm looking at this is you have this incredibly complex geometric multi-layered dome, which is 10 miles high at a minimum and probably doesn't extend down to the surface. There's probably like a mile or so between the current surface of the moon and the underside of this glass, you know, egg carton construction. And so you're looking up from the underside at something geometric, which is not at the top, but relatively low down, close to the surface, let's say a mile or so. And if it's material objects, large objects are there, they are protected by the overlying layers. In other words, the way the dome is eroded is from the top down. And it's basically mass. It's sheer mass. You know, every impact, you know, vaporizes a little amount of material, which vanishes into interplanetary space, never to return. So the dome has been over micrometeorite and larger meteorite bombardment for uncountless millions of years, whittled away, eroded, whittled away, whittled away, whittled away. So the stuff you're seeing is the most massive, best protected at the lowest levels of the dome, which means it's just above like a mile or so, uh, the surface. And so when the camera on Apollo 16, which looked in several directions, um, photographed the stars beyond it, it's, it's there, it's in focus because the camera, anything beyond 50 feet is at infinity and in focus. And nobody has mentioned that the archives have about a dozen shots from this experiment which show things in the sky over the moon that according to NASA's
canonical explanations simply do not exist. They can't be there, and yet they're right in NASA's own archives, if you know how to look. It's always in knowing how to look at the archive, right, Nova? That was interesting, yeah. I'd like to see the rest of the images. Well, I could bore you and send you a whole bunch of them in the next week or so, but basically what, what you're seeing is the same thing you're seeing here. Now, what's really interesting, if you look, if you magnify the number five, do you notice something really weird about the image? Besides the kind of yeah, geometry. Well, got, yeah, of course, it's got these, um, these lines. Yeah, well, that's the geometry of the glass. It's not, a, it's not an inverted solid bowl. It has incredible complex geometry, and the reasoning is obvious. It could not support its own weight unless it had lots and lots of tensegrity architectural elements that would keep it suspended even in one-sixth gravity. That's the first thing you see. The second thing is, look at all the double stars. Do you see them? Mm-hmm. Like, if you, if you take the object as... You mean they're being, it's being refracted? Exactly, by the glass. And they're all in the same direction. Notice? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that shouldn't be. There aren't that right. many double right. stars that are duplicates in the sky. Right. right. They're yeah, all a like lot. Car- they're, they're all, I'm sorry, go ahead. Car headlights, Richard. Yes, because you've got the primary and then you have the, the bi refraction because it's going through the glass. It's mm-hmm. simple ray refraction in a glass like medium, which is not solid. It's composed of separate elements, and each element will interact on its own with stars like coming through, and so you get a double image. And notice they're all aligned. You notice that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's because of the geometry of the dome. Mm -hmm. Oh, I could go on for days on this data, and the fact that they keep crashing and not looking at what I've written and published, you know, in monuments or in Dark Mission or wherever, is very frustrating. And I know that you and I had a kind of oblique conversation uh, briefly a week or two ago, and I said, could you let them know what they're in for? And you said categorically, no, because I don't have that level of interaction. And from what you told us tonight, they wouldn't have listened anyway. So why couldn't we shine some kind of laser at the moon and have it bounce off of this and prove that it's there? You can. It's been done. The data's just been buried. Because it's too damn embarrassing. Look, you're you're familiar with my friend Arthur Clarke's third law, right? Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Mm -hmm. Everybody I talk to on this gets hung up on, oh, how could you do that technologically? The answer is, if it's an ET civilization, they obviously figured it out because it's there. We don't have to know how they did it. All we want to know is where it's thinnest, how we can get down through it safely. And now you go to my item number seven. This is what's going to happen to uh, Odysseus, okay? It uses a laser radar, not, not electromagnetic, <laughs> not S-band or UHF or whatever. It uses lasers to safely land itself on the moon by autonomous computer control. When you shine a laser, just take a laser pointer, stack up your, your shot glasses on the bar, and shine your laser pointer at the glasses. You will see what you see in item number seven, an incredible 
set of multiple reflections bouncing between the various layers of the glass, which remember you are looking at in image number five on the right-hand side. If the computer has been taught that it's going to ping the surface with a laser pulse and get a time pulse echo back and thereby gauge its descent velocity, its distance from the surface, other landing parameters to touch down gently, and it instead is confronted by a bewildering and constantly changing, carousicating, brilliant, scintillating, glass-like reflection of laser light. Bing, 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 bang, 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 boom, boom. Sound like Trump. They're going to crash because the computer was never designed to handle the flood of non-standard data that they programmed it with because it doesn't even know the glass is there because its owners do not know the glass is there and they chose exactly the wrong technology, not once, not twice, but all of these missions going are using lasers as opposed to radar like surveyor used because they think it's easier, cheaper, and more reliable and they're making exactly the wrong decision because someone has not told them there's a damn dome there. So, Richard, off the right, uh, very soon off the bat of the show, you said two nations have made it through, China and India. Can you briefly explain why they've made it, especially India? Well, the Chinese are interesting because in all these missions landing, and Nova, you're probably aware of this, uh, Barashit started the trend. They do a very long trail across about half the moon in this long parabolic descending arc, and then they land. But, of course, that exposes you to thousands of linear miles of glass that could be in the way. All it takes is one chunk in the wrong place, and bing, there goes your your mission, which is what happened to Bereshit. It literally, on the screen, we saw it turn upside down. So physically, it hit something, it rotated it, and then it could not, you know, reverse itself, even if it survived electronically or mechanically in time to prevent the crash. The Japanese mission did the same thing, except their impact with something was lower. They were moving a lot slower. They impacted whatever they hit at a slower velocity. It ripped off an engine which is lying on the surface right next to the inverted lander. The lander touched down. It was moving sideways because the RCS system, the reaction control system in the spacecraft, could not recover from a totally unmodeled impact. I mean, whoever expected hitting something a mile above the moon? Nobody. So they didn't have it in the computer. If this happens, do that. So it hit, and then it rolled, and it came to rest upside down, and they were able to recover some data because it apparently is still alive and it may survive the lunar night or again, it may not. Okay. I've got a question for you. How come the lunar reconnaissance orbiter isn't seeing the glass? They are, and they're taking it out digitally. NASA's mm-hmm. covering it up. Of course they are. Okay. Yeah. And with, see with, with the film from the early lunar orbiters and the um, Apollo missions, They did not know. Most of the people involved in Apollo had no idea what was really there. So they rushed out all of this press release material as soon as possible. They made films. 
they didn't make videos. They didn't have videos back then. But they made 16 millimeter release prints for every library on the planet and sent them all over the world. So on those films, if you take a frame and put it through a computer and enhance it, the dome is there in mission after mission after mission. And I believe that somebody at NASA had to know from Lunar Orbiter that this, in fact, was a reality because there was a mission rule, which is you cannot land on the moon, Apollo, unless your radar is working at 50,000 feet all the way to the surface. And do you remember what happened during Apollo uh, 14? They couldn't get the radar to work. And afterwards, you know, ultimately MIT wound up in a back room giving them a procedure to get it up and running just in time for what they call PDI, Power Descent Initiation, so they could land on the moon with the descent engine and the rocket thrust of backing down to the moon like Musk now lands his first stages back here on Earth. But at several parties after the mission, Alan Shepard, who was the commander of Apollo 14, first American astronaut into space and back down back in 1961, um, Kennedy would never let him fly again because he wanted to preserve the first astronaut. So he did not get a mission to the moon until almost the end of the program. Apollo 14. But he was asked several times over that period of time when, you know, all the astronauts were partying like you guys did the other night. And many people asked him, well, if you if Ed Mitchell, together with MIT, had not gotten the radar working, would you have landed anyway? And he would simply look at the questioner and he would simply smile and would never answer the question. So you know what the answer was, right? Of course he was going to try to land. And he, 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 th- th- they actually might have died because my feeling is the radar was required in the mission rules because if they saw something on the radar, they would have time to maneuver around it and not kill themselves by impacting a chunk of glass that was stubbornly in the, in the, in the wrong, you know, orbital trajectory down to the surface. So, Richard, this begs the question that if somebody on the inside had inside knowledge that, well, we might hit some rocks along, <laughs> some, some bumps along the way, so we've got to use this technology, and all these decades forward, we now see all these, these companies, these startups uh, going up, and they're smacking away. Well, obviously, the data hasn't been given to them, except Maybe for the Indians who found a way. Well, um, let me tell you. Let me tell you. Let me tell you what the Indians we're nine, did. We're Ninety we're, seconds out. Yeah, we're basically two minutes to the bottom. So what we'll do is I will hold off in explaining how the Indians managed to succeed when everybody else has failed, and obviously all the other people need to take what the Indians did, which they're not talking about in terms of how they successfully landed on the moon. So we will hold that. Uh, we're literally here at what? About uh, a minute and a half. So let's do this. And I click this. My guests this morning are Nova Spivak, who is sending libraries of humankind all over the solar system eventually, and maybe out of it eventually. And certainly tonight, he's got one en route to the moon. And I have a special reason for wanting it to land safely. 
because it's got my book in it. Isn't that a self-serving motive? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. You know that lunar author. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this now Sunday night, Sunday morning, pre-dawn here in the land of enchantment. My guests this morning are Nova Spivak and Andrew Curry. And Andrew, uh, I believe you have some items, some artwork that you have prepared over the data we have shared over the years regarding the ancient lunar dome. Yeah, yeah, we could go to that quick uh, if you go to my items um, on the uh, page, go to the well. Richard, can you describe how to get to the items? I don't think I don't know if we did that tonight. Well, we only did it once for my stuff. So you go to the other side of midnight.com. You click on tonight's banner, and let me read you carefully what it says, because I was so, you know, I'm I'm so frustrated that they don't, you know, obviously understand what's going on. I said they're trying again. Any bets? That's our banner for tonight with Nova Spivak's name in brilliant red on the bottom lower left below the Falcon 9 rocket crossing the moon. Click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page. Under the guest page, you'll see uh, a line that says fast links to items. Uh, I'm sorry, under the banner on the guest page. And you'll see Richard, Nova, and Andrew. Click on Andrew's name, and that takes you to his section. I think you've got four, no, you've got three images, three posters of various complexity showing what else is on the moon. Yeah. Well, let's go to number two first. Okay. Go three and then we'll come back to one. So if we go to my number two, I call it Crystal Cities. And again, Richard, I'm going to get Uh-oh. you to describe. I'm, I'm trying to get it bigger. It's not clicking. Oh, refresh probably. It, it's working for sure. Uh, no. No, it's – I have to use my little scroll wheel to make it bigger. And it looks like a, it looks like, like a thumbnail. It's not the full size image. 
Yeah. Click the image. I'm having a problem. I'm seeing it work. I'm clicking it now. Okay. Let me try this. No, it's not coming up for me, unfortunately. Nope. Okay, so we can't look at that one. In fact, I, I can't look at number three either because it doesn't do the same thing. Let me see number ah. one. Uh, number... Are you clicking the image? Yes, yeah, of course. Click, click on the image. Yeah, yeah, I'm clicking the image. All right. I corrected these things. Yeah, they're zooming for me. They work fine. No, I when I click on Refresh it, Refresh your page, Richard. Yeah, I'm doing that. Yeah, hang on, hang on. This is real-time radio, folks. Sorry about that. Okay, here we are. Okay, now, now it's working. It's working. You got it. Okay. Yeah. So if you hit my the poster number two, it says AC Crystal Cities. And I lifted the first two images from your data, I believe. Richard. Yeah, this, this, is, this is from Apollo 10, taken from the command module of the lunar surface when they went down to 50,000 feet. It's taken out the windows of the lunar horizon. And it's this stunning stuff you can see all over Sinus Medi if you're looking sideways out the uh, out the window of, of the lunar module or the command module. Yeah, and what I do, Nova, is off because I'm an artist. I try to you know do my own enhancement, which you know obviously is 50% data, 50% imagination, but speculation. But this is what I see, and in fact, I put a little. So my 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 sort of digital illustration is right there. Um, well, you got you got the two actual photographs. On the left is the is the full frame. I forget the number. Uh, on the right is a close up of the so-called skyscraper on the left of the full frame, and b- then below it artwork of what you see in the photo. Yeah, and then I put a little inset photo, and that little inset photo is actually from a design that is going to be used in Burning Man this year, 2024. Uh, and there, somebody, some artist, architect, artist, or something, has won a contest to build a temple in the middle of the desert. And there's a moon <laughs> hanging in the in the concept drawing. And I just thought, wow, that just reminds me of the kinds of you know things that we're seeing on the moon. Oftentimes, these sort of gothic like arches. If you scroll down a little bit more, this these three images are um, drawings or uh, architectural drawings and a cross-section of a proposed Crystal Island project that was supposed to be done in Moscow. Uh, but back in 2009, it was scuttled, I guess, because of all the economic stuff that was happening on the planet. And to this date, it hasn't been finished. But I just thought it was a really interesting uh, form, Richard, because it, it just, I mean, it, it's a singular needle going up. But it, 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 this idea of an arcology and all kinds of things going on inside this building which is a lot of glass, probably a lot of metal here too, just kind of echoed for me some of the stuff I think I'm seeing, you know, on the moon in these in these sort of faint but interestingly ghostly geometric shapes that we see in, in the images. And if we pull out of that and go to my number three, call this uh, Gothic Echoes, and if you just um, enlarge it, and Richard, again, do you want to do the, the first two images let me let me go back here. Hang on. I'm having a problem with this computer. I huh. think I think well, you know, computers. Come on. You know, they always... I also put it in the chat box too if you want to. Yeah, go there. No, 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 I I can get there. Hang on. Just just yeah. give, me, give me a moment. All right. Uh Oh dear. Dear 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 dear. Okay, let me go back. 
Which one do we not want now? Three? Number three, yeah. Number three, okay. Clicking on three. There we are, okay. Again, these are all from Apollo 10 over Sinus Medi, which is the central uh, dark mare on the moon, almost dead center. And it has some really interesting uh, architecture. When you look at, you know, the Apollo astronaut images, these are actual real images. All we've done uh, is to is to lighten them up and change the contrast because it's all in the film. And I ordered the same reels from several different NASA labs like Houston, JPL, uh, Goddard, the National Space Science Data Center. And we were able to get access to actual uh, early generation negatives to have prints made. And in all of NASA's record, the same things show up, regardless of which photo lab from NASA that you ordered this stuff from. This was like 20 some years ago. So, I mean, I have zero doubt that there's this incredible set of glass structures. I just wonder why NASA has not decided to tell people who are spending a lot of money to do these missions and not to tell them what they're going to run into, literally, is, is, is malfeasance of the highest order. Well, it seems totally asinine. <laughs> Unless, Richard, I, and I put this in the chat box just as a floating a question out there, you know, could part of this be that they want these missions, you know, like I said before the break, somebody has knowledge, you know, and then they've sort of, you know, we went to lower Earth orbit to do um, the, uh, 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 the, you know, the, the, the oh, the, um, oh, the space planes, what were they called that we, we did for so many decades? You mean the shuttle? Shuttle, yeah, the shuttles, and then never did, any, apparently never did anything else, and now we're coming back to the moon, and now there seems to be this gap in knowledge of well somebody had an idea like you said they were using radar unless someone is supposed to finally go oh we're hitting something maybe we should you know find out what that is and then disclosure begins i don't know you know maybe that that's part of this see i am i am so torn nova i so desperately want this mission to succeed certainly after seeing their 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 cameras their photography because it's going to be spectacular best digital imagery bar no no nation that's ever been sent in the current era to the moon we can already see that if they land successfully and they start taking pictures with the telescope they're going to show us a sky full of the kind of stuff you're seeing in five and six full of it how will they deny that how will they ignore it how will they explain it away so that could be beginning next thursday the beginning of disclosure, which is we're surrounded by incredibly ancient, sophisticated artifacts, Arthur's third law, and we have not been allowed to know that until this private company lands successfully, takes the photographs, puts them out on Twitter or X, and bingo, paradigms change radically, radically. Well, that would be amazing, obviously. He says calmly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I look, let me finish my poster. So below that, uh, Nova, I've, I've done a, a sketch. Just I look very carefully. We're, we're, we're still on number three. Number three, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and I just did a heavy, uh, you know, heavy rendered image. And then actually below that is where I softened it up to make it more like the original photograph. 
and you know when I was sort of doing this, this stuff is like for me at least seems to be hanging, but there's these forms that keep appearing, and they're gothic archy kind mm. of feeling mm. to them yeah. in, 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 from what I'm seeing and feeling intuitively as well as seeing. And I started to, you know, grab pictures of like Westminster Abbey. That's the one of the shots there that I've been embedded. And then this very curious, uh, goth, kind of a modern Gothic cathedral that was yes, well, actually, it's, familiar. yes, exactly in Barcelona. And it's been like 142 years in the making, and it's, it's supposedly supposed to be finished in, I think, 2026. But others are saying maybe in the 2040s. And I found it fascinating that, you know, Richard, the shapes, like the, the architect described it as, you know, he loved nature and he wanted to build this like, you know, trees with, you know, going up. And, and it just reminds me the forms and the and the colors, Richard, like if there, there's a shot. Well, there remember where this data to build cathedrals all over Europe suddenly emerging out of nowhere after the Crusades and what the Templars found under Jerusalem did to humanity. It taught us about buttresses, about architecture, engineering, loads. Uh, Nova, what was in that ancient archive under Jerusalem that the Templars found when they made it to Jerusalem during that first crusade? You tell me. Well, something like you put on the moon. Mm. Yeah, maybe. Well, how did the middle, middle, medieval engineers out of nowhere, there was no precedent technology, suddenly they launched this incredible crusade to build cathedrals of awesome, stupendous splendor and engineering prowess and expertise out of no foundation, no, no legacy, no, no learning curve, no... Okay, you make the small stuff first, you make the bigger stuff, and then you make – in other words, it was like suddenly overnight, the technology of creating splendiferous cathedrals in Christendom, in the mm-hmm. Roman Catholic tradition, suddenly emerged out of nowhere, mm-hmm. except we know where it came from. It came from these secret archives under Jerusalem that the crusaders pillaged and brought back to Europe and then put to use. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's, they, they talk about the Templar treasure, but nobody seems to really know exactly what it is. That's what it is. It was knowledge. And the question is, if, if you're seeing the same kind of arches, Andrew, that I've seen, by the way, uh, mm. you know, you're, you're second. I've seen them first. But my feeling, <laughs> my feeling was, you know, form follows function. If mm. you're building big things, then you've got to follow the rules of gravity geometry, architecture, strains, loads, tension. And so you're going to see identical forms, even if they're in a totally different medium, in this case, glass, not in stone. And we don't know how really sophisticated the glass is. My feeling, Nova, is that it's smart glass, not dumb glass. Okay. Meaning it was wired. It was designed to do all kinds of incredible things like filter solar radiation, like regenerate maybe solar wind and pipe it into the electronic infrastructure. In other words, if you make smart glass, and there's now discussions widely you know, in the literature about really smart glass designed by AI, 
There's all kinds of things you can do with something very simple like glass that we're not doing yet because we don't quite have the technology, but it's coming up, you know, very fast at warp nine on the inside track. What if you had a civilization a million years more advanced than we are that wanted to occupy previously unoccupiable realms in planetary systems? Would you not, if you have the technology, dome them in and create livable, habitable environments anywhere you wanted to live? It's the old 800-pound gorilla joke. You know, where does the 800-pound gorilla sleep? Anywhere it wants to. Well, this kind of a civilization could occupy any body, any world, big or small, that it wanted to by simply using this knowledge and technology. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Richard, what's really interesting when you said it's smart glass, um, Robert Morningstar, who's a, a friend and a guest on the show often, um, he was showing me a really curious video I can't, I, somewhere in the States, I think, and it was this fantastic uh, electrical storm, and the electrical um, you know, arcs were hitting the swimming pool. And the connection of, of the – what was happening is, is the electricity was, was hitting the water, and somehow the water was getting drawn up through these tubes. Like the, the electricity literally made tubes because when the electricity went away, the water, you could briefly see it holding the form. Oh, it's called magnetohydrodynamics. It's the same plasma being used in some of the uh, fusion technology machines like the tokamax and whatever. And the lightning has such amperage and such intense magnetic fields that it ionizes the water. And yes, it remains suspended after the strike momentarily so it'd be interesting if these domes were just highly electrified or plasmified or whatever the, the process well i don't think i know i think they're passive but i was going to try to dig out um imagery we have video nova of and again amateur astronomers from earth who have set who have looked at the moon with good telescopes and good video recording equipment and they have spotted incredible pulses some kind of wave phenomenon that goes from pole to pole and there are several independent videos and i didn't have time to assemble them i obviously will put them on the moon on the moon around the moon showing a shock wave moving through this smart glass from Mm. literally pole to pole and i will dig that out we'll post it on the other side of midnight and we'll also, I'll send it to you, and you'll be amazed. Now, one of these amateur astronomers years ago, I contacted to get him on the show. And I'm not going to mention any names, but it turns out that he is a raving, raving religious fanatic. What he saw so boggled his mind and introduced to his scientific concepts the idea of a deity had to do this. This could not be done by any normal people that he basically has gone around the bend and he would not make a very good interview. But that's the caliber of the psychological reaction. I think a la Brookings, those inside who have known this for 50 years, have basically come to the conclusion that humans are not ready. Or I should append that, that they may not have been ready. They may now envision that we're ready now because ultimately all these crashes 
have got to to wind up with some engineer saying, why the hell can't we land on the moon anymore? Yeah. Well, I mean, it would certainly be a shock, you know, if we see extremely advanced uh, civilizations or the remnants of these extremely advanced civilizations that we're doing, you know, Dyson sphere level engineering. Yeah. Are you a, uh, a, a betting person, Nova? <laughs> Uh, I never make bets that I Darn. win. I was hoping you wanted to bet against me because I'm going to win big time. No, I couldn't. I wouldn't be able to make that bet. <laughs> however, however, Nova, NASA has opened up like a, a department about Richard's solar system uh, uh, remnants, right? Like this is what. Well, is as, as as part of this new anomalous. Um, uh, what do they call it? Um, oh, I, I, I UAP. There yeah, uh, unidentified anomalous phenomenon. All science is basically phenomenon, right? And it all starts out being anomalous. So, as part of their new appreciation of UFOs slash UAP, Nova NASA has set up an office in NASA headquarters under the administrator, officially looking at techno signatures mm-hmm. of anomalous phenomenon around the solar system so mm-hmm. they've set up a bureaucratic foundation what they're going to do is they're going to keep letting these companies crash until somebody's smart enough to try to figure out why and then they will say oh my god we never knew and that's mm-hmm. how i think they're politically planning to get out from under the cloud of knowing about this for decades and not telling anybody. And so, Richard, could you explain how the Indians did it? I keep coming. Before. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Okay. I have found in looking at the dome images that we can see during eclipses, way back when, when I was at CBS, I proposed an experiment to Cronkite and community, and lo and behold, they adopted it. We borrowed an Air Force missile tracking 707. I had the CBS labs in Stanford build me a telescope. I had the engineering department at CBS find me the best low light level camera on the planet. I married telescope and camera. In the optical beam, I put a half silvered mirror, which had a radial density gradient in in vaporized aluminum in a vacuum chamber so that at the very edge of the hole in the center of the, of, the, of the disc, the aluminum layer was very thick, and it got much, much thinner as you went to the edge. And the idea was to marry the optical filtering qualities of this special filter with the optical electronic qualities of this low-light-level color TV camera aimed through a telescope at a mirror in, a, in an Air Force missile tracking 707 at 40,000 feet over Georgia. And I was looking to record for the first time on live television the faint glow of Earthlight on the moon during a total solar eclipse. Mm-hmm. And there is video, in fact, we put it up at some point, showing what we got. And what I got was not what I expected because I didn't know what I was really looking for. And what we see is evidence on this early videotape of the domes. 
long discussion, probably a whole program should be devoted to it, whatever, whatever. Now, electronically, in the, in the camera and the telescope, you can do all this digitally, where you can stack multiple frames and eliminate, you know, stray light to where you can have a, a um, image sandwich where you see the moon with all the features illuminated by Earth light. And then the corona is coming out from behind the moon, you know, around the sun, 93 million miles behind the moon. And you see these images together and the, the presence of the dome over the optical image you can see this way is obviously overwhelmingly there again and again and again and again and again. And I kept asking myself as I found this out, why is it so obvious during lunar eclipse, uh, solar eclipses if you have the right technology? And it turns out it's because of what's called polarization. When you get light bouncing off glass, it's polarized. It doesn't vibrate in a circle. It vibrates in planes. And by adjusting the filter mechanically, rotating it left and right, you can single out the rotating plane of polarized reflected light coming from the lunar dome. And that's what these guys are photographing. And they have no idea that's what they're seeing. None. Zero. Mm. But the natural polarization of the Earth's reflection from clouds and oceans combined with the double polarization of bouncing off the glass shows the presence of the glass around the moon that we can see with a dark area in the middle, which, of course, is where we landed safely, the surveyors and Apollo, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you come forward to the 21st century the Indians, when they sent their mission to the moon, they sent a polarizing camera. Hmm. They photographed the glass around the moon with their polarizing camera. They found the safe way to get down and not hit any big chunks. And that's why the Indians became the fourth nation to successfully land on the moon. So you think they're aware of the glass? Of course they are. They have to be. By the way, they then took this spacecraft, which was in their orbiting propulsion module. They put it back into a high orbit of the Earth so they can photograph the moon and the Earth as planets. So as the, as the moon rotates, they're getting images of the glass all the way around the moon for their future missions. And they're not telling anyone. And Richard, they learned from their first probe that crashed, right? Yes, Chandrayaan two, because their their probe landed. Uh, I'm sorry, went into orbit, but their their lander crashed because it hit the glass. And obviously, the Indians are very bright, and they said to themselves, "Okay, if we're going to do this again, we got to figure out what went wrong." And I, they either read my stuff, uh, Andrew. Why don't you talk about your Indian friend who says that I'm yeah. a big radio personality in India? Yeah, so um, a friend of mine, uh, Nova, he's uh, he's Hindu, and he's originally from India, just a small town. I, I can't remember the name. And he told me he used to – they used to all gather around the radio and listen to Richard talk <laughs> on, on Coast to Coast with Art Bell. Wow. And, wow. Yeah, so, so I can't prove it, but I think maybe the Indians were smart enough to pick up <laughs> on what we're saying because it's all there. All you have to do is look. It's not like it's in my archives. It's in NASA's. It's public domain. You just mm. have to have a brain and get past 
Arthur's third law. Because I think what right. freaked out NASA decades ago is, holy cow, we can't tell them this. If these guys could do this, we're like, you know, bugs on a windshield. They could wipe us out <laughs> in a nanosecond tomorrow. And there's not a damn thing we can do about it. The scale of this technology is it literally at the level of playing God with the solar system. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. going to be the paradigm shift. And I think it's either coming next Thursday or maybe they'll wait until the 25th. We've got literally two minutes, Andrew. You that's, wanna... on the, that's on the 25th? Uh, a magician named David Copperfield. A friend of mine. Is Really? He is claiming on the night of the 25th, he's going to make the moon disappear. Mm -hmm. And the only way he can do it, if he's really doing it, and it's not in some parking lot in Las Vegas, is he's working in concert who have figured out how to make the dome work again. And they'll flip a switch and the moon will appear to disappear because of the active, intelligent, smart glass of the surviving elements of the dome. Well, you know, I mean, David does have some really advanced technology. He's he's a multi-billionaire. And his father was at Roswell mm-hmm. in the yeah. military. He has he has some incredibly advanced technology. Just be amazed. I, I, they wouldn't even believe it if I told you what. I can't. I'm not allowed to. I'm under NDA. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I know what he's doing. And I know what he's got. And, you know, it's almost alien technology. I'll say that. Oh, yeah, not, I can't say it's for sure. If well, it then, is, of course, the question is, where does it come from? Well, I mean, it's I I when I saw it, I honestly I I don't know what to think. I, I don't know if, if it if it originates from Earth or how he got it or how he did it or how they built it. I mean, and on that know. note, gentlemen, yeah. our time this evening is concluded. I want to thank Nova Spivak and Andrew Curry for a very exciting conversation. Tomorrow night with Tim Ventura and Greg Ahrens, we're going to tackle an equally interesting and important mystery. What happened to Barry 1 and the first hyperdimensional space drive in Earth orbit? It's not what you think. Wait till you hear. So until tomorrow night, same time, same bat channel, remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. And look to the moon on Thursday.